we were looking to use this as a tool to resist state control, right? And that's yeah. that's what a lot of people do right now. Right. It keeps, it keeps keeping people alive around the world. And like, you know, Myanmar, for example, like how they how are they funding their revolution? It's their Bitcoin. How do Venezuelans get, you know, get stuff? A lot of it's Bitcoin. Um, so it works. Uh, you know, in the West, it's largely a casino. Um, and I mean, we saw issues like in Canada with the trucker revolt, right? We saw like the exactly, right? You know, people got their banking shut down. And they saw, oh, shit, you know, we can see there's a reason for Bitcoin. But is it big enough yet? No, but then the Bitcoin became an issue, right? With them blacklisting addresses and... That's, be that's because they were taking it through a central website. This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero and Bitcoin safely on iOS and Android too. Cake Wallet is open source and you always control your own keys. And by Stealth EX, an instant exchange where privacy is the top concern. Go to StealthEX.io to instantly exchange between Monero and 450 plus assets without having to create an account or register and with no limits. Making Stealth EX a simple way to purchase Monero with crypto anonymously. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever. By typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or Cake Wallet send address field to send us a tip. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman interviews Eric Voskul, a Bitcoin anarchist, author of Cryptoeconomics, a comprehensive book on the fundamental principles of Bitcoin, and lead developer of the free and open source Bitcoin developer toolkit, Libitcoin. The two discuss Eric's journey to crypto and his contributions to Bitcoin, the different ideological factions within the Bitcoin community, whether or not non-KYC anonymous transactions are possible in the white market, fungibility through privacy, ASICs as a centralization problem, Monero solving significant issues in Bitcoin, the future of crypto, and much more. All right. Eric, what's going on, man? Doug. Thanks for coming on Monero Talk. It's a new thing for me. You're a brave man. I, I don't know the first thing about Monero. So. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All, right. All right. That's. I mean, I. I know, I know the first thing. I know what I read in the funny pages, but that's about it. <laughs> well, uh, I've, I've been enjoying your book. Very good stuff. Good stuff. Great to see. I kind of, you know, initially just breezed through. I was looking for mentions of, of privacy and fungibility. Me being a Monero guy, I'm instantly uh, drawn towards those elements of crypto. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean... Uh, Monero, I think, tends to have a place of high, high importance on those aspects, which are which are pretty important. And um, uh, I, 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 I maybe in, in some aspects of the Bitcoin community don't get as much emphasis, which they really should. Um, but that's you know those are areas of privacy and, and security are, are the most important to me in terms of you know both my software and, and my writing yeah what would uh so if you don't mind can you give a quick quick background in terms of in terms of bitcoin like uh what, 
why why are we having you on this show today? I mean, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it looks like it looks like you know what you're talking about. You've been involved since I think 2014. Uh, you were you were a dev. Um, you you know, give, give give us give us your background. Um, yeah, yeah. I've been uh, I don't know some I guess early 2014 when I when I got started. Um, I was. Uh, I was a startup guy for a while, um, and I was doing, I was, I was doing my, uh, I guess my third startup uh, when when Bitcoin was introduced, and um, I had some familiarity with, uh, you know, the concepts going back to the '90s, and and so I just kind of kept ignoring it because I was so busy with my startup, and um, because you know I had seen those things come and go, DigiCash, et cetera, and uh, and. As soon as I wound down that that third startup, I I took a look at it um, because of a article by Andy Greenberg and Forbes and Silk Road, and mm-hmm. I've been working on it ever since. I mean, really since that day, because I got it right away um, because of that prior experience. Anyway, I I, uh, I have a computer science degree. I I joined the Navy um, right out of college, and, and uh, I did that for ten years. Uh, flew airplanes um, off of boats. And then um, I kept I kept coding. I, I, I always liked doing it. Um, and eventually, I, I left the Navy um, at the end of ni- end of ninety eight. I had been doing a uh, kind of a bedroom startup for about a year or two. And so uh, I, I did that for a number of years. And um, in two thousand six, I sold that to Microsoft, and um, cool. that's how I ended up out here in Seattle. Awesome. Um, you know, I, I stayed there till I got paid, and, and then uh, we stayed in Seattle because of the kids, and uh, they're gone. So um, I'm still here for who knows, who knows what reason. But um, then I uh, we, we we split that company in, in two. Actually, at the time we sold it, so uh, I, I joined that company, the spin-out company, for a, a couple of years, and we sold that. Um, and then um, I was doing a third, um, which I shut down. And then that's when I found Bitcoin. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I found um, I, I wanted to find code that I could work in, and I and I looked at the Satoshi code. And I was gassed, so I I kept looking, and um, I looked at I had done I, actually my third startup because I had come out of Microsoft. So Microsoft people, I spent a lot of time in C sharp for like three years, and uh, before that, I was more, mainly a C plus plus guy. And so I, I took a look at N Bitcoin, which was new, a C sharp thing, and then I, I finally decided it had to be it had to be in C C plus if I was going to do it. So uh, I found LeBitcoin um, somehow and um, started rooting around in the code. This was late 2013, early 2014, and I and I um, I decided I wanted to meet Amir, uh, watch some watch some Amir videos and Amir Taki, your friend. Yeah, yeah. Is there another Amir? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Yeah. yeah, and and so I I um, I was I was very interested in his personality, his perspectives on Bitcoin and everything. Um, so uh, I got uh, I wanted to meet him, but he wouldn't respond to my emails because um, I was nobody. And um, or I, I don't know why actually. He's, he's like that sometimes. But um, I, I I was trolling through the the Bitcoin mailing list, and I found one of my old fraternity brothers was had some posts in there. And I was like, you know, and he lived, happened to live in Seattle. So I went and saw him. I was like, 
can you do you know Amir? And they say actually knew each other. And so um, he gave me an intro. Uh, they knew each other before Bitcoin, actually. And so he gave me an intro. And, and I went out to, to Barcelona and uh, and uh, and that's that's where we met. So we stayed in touch ever since um, I started. I started working on the project. I was actually working on a hardware wallet uh, for the first year. And um, I had a friend who who did like high end uh, another fraternity brother actually in Seattle who did high end consumer electronics design work and um, and uh, I, I went through the whole design process and I finally decided that I, I didn't I didn't want to actually make it um, so I uh, I've been using Libitcoin as the software stack and I, I decided I really just like doing that so um, I kind of. <laughs> I kind of went into semi-retirement and ever since then I've just been working on this open source project and I, I took some time once I started speaking and I had my own conference in, in Hanoi in 2020 um, the, the software kind of stalled for a couple of years so uh, I went back to that um, uh, about almost two years ago now so let me see yeah, let me see. It was early 2021. I, I so about two years ago, I started full on back on the software, and I kind of reset. Um, I've been working on it ever since. I, I spent about a month or two to get the book out, and I've done. I've done. Uh, I've helped the French, Italian, and Spanish editions come out. Those are just volunteer translations, but I do all the publishing and and very cool. So. So I did spend a little time on that, but mostly it's just been uh, software. I've tried to travel less and code more, um, and um, that's that's what I do. I just um, I like the software. I like um, like the theory, but um, I decided it was time to get the Bitcoin up to uh, where, where it was capable of. So that's what I do now. Sweet. And what what is the task there when you say getting it up to what it's capable of? Like, well, what's the what's the goal? Well, it was never really done. And that, that's been, I mean, there's different pieces of it that have been high quality and, and complete enough for like, you know, um, commercial use, but most of the stack has really never been completed. And, um, can you explain uh, that a little bit more? Like what value is that going to create for those of us that aren't super, uh, super technical? Well, um, I don't know. Maybe it'll just be fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't is that know. You fly jets too? Is it just for fun, right? Right. I, uh, I, um, I mean, the only the only reason I had a startup company when I left the Navy and that you know sold to Microsoft because I, I I was writing some software that I liked writing and, awesome. and uh, you know now I'm retired on it. Um, you know, I was I was retired by the time I found Bitcoin, so um, I uh, I I just work on it because I like doing it, and I've I've. I've raised money for other people to work on the Bitcoin. Um, we, we've got a, you know, we've got a guy, uh, two years worth of pay now. He's a computer science PhD type and worked with me for a long time. And I've raised money for other people uh, to work on it. I, I've never taken any money to do anything in Bitcoin. Um, you know, only only travel reimbursement if I'm consulting for somebody. But I don't take money for consulting or for coding or. Anything I, I uh, you know, and I've, I've actually paid for a couple of Libitcoin developers for a few years to, to, to work on it. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, and to me, it's just something I, I want to see happen. Um, you know, Amir had a, had a vision for it, which I think is pretty reasonable. That um, So 
I don't know uh, how far you go back, and I don't know anything about you. So, um, but if you were around at the time of the Bitcoin Foundation um, when that came and then went, I mean, I guess it's still out there. But yeah, I, m- I remember when it was around, and then it was like controversial, and then it- yeah, yeah. Uh, Namira was stirring up a yeah. lot of that controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, a, you know, he he found Bitcoin because he was an online gambler. Uh, he 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 ran a online gambling site or he did something with it. I don't know the details, but he found Bitcoin as payment system. And then he started working on it. And then he's like, Hey, there's no, there's no development tools. There's no library. It's nothing, right? There's just this monolith that, that Satoshi wrote and it's awful. So he started writing his own stuff. He found Pat, Patrick Straitman, uh, who laid down the first line of code for, uh, live Bitcoin actually, um, later became, he became a large miner. And now I think he, he's a block screen, um, or was, but um, so they got it started, and uh, the objective was to produce uh, a full node, and um, uh, that wasn't, you know, that was its independent code base. And part of it was to, to produce a developer library, a set of tools for building other things on Bitcoin. Um, because I think he kind of had the foresight to see that, you know, what was going to happen is people were going to de- build web APIs and everybody's going to connect to those and recentralize everything, mm-hmm. which is pro- very problematic, right? Um, so if you don't have tools you can build on, um, then that becomes the easy way for people to get things done. And if they don't really you know, understand or care about the you know, security, uh, privacy aspects of it, then that's what happens. And that is, a lot, to a large extent, what happened. Um, the other thing, uh, uh, there was a... There was kind of an internal private mailing, security mailing list for the Bitcoin dev types. And you know, I was never a part of that, so I, I, I'm just um, relaying what I understand. But um, there was some conflict with Amir because he can be uh, a little different. Uh, and uh, and he got booted off the, uh, the, the security mailing list. It basically kind of booted off the team, you know. Um, and this was around the time that the, um, that the money was coming in from Bitcoin Foundation. These guys were... These are you know, salaried employees of the Bitcoin Foundation for the most part. Um, you know, Gavin and Mike, and um, you know, were the when I when I started, they were the ones that were doing most of the work. And um, so there was a lot of technical conflict over some things. Some things that turned out to be, you know, probably shouldn't have been done. Um, be recognized now, or have been undone since that Amir was against. And he creates, so as a result, he created the BIP system. BIP, BIP1 is, is Amir's creation of the BIP, BIP system. And that was based on Python. It was the PIP, Python Improvement Proposals, I guess. And so he, he kind of cloned that and, and uh, opened up the discussion, formalized it a little bit, which is a major contribution to, in itself. Um, and then uh, um, created LeBitcoin to not only provide a set of tools for developers, but to provide an alternative um, to the voice that people had because, you know, they were they were producing the only software anybody used. I mean, imagine, you know, if you, if you were Netscape back in the day and you were the only web browser in the world and, you know, nobody else ever made one, you have pretty much final say on everything, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of what was you know, the way he saw it. And so uh, from my perspective, over the years watching this happen, uh, I can very much see that, you know, there's there's kind of a monoculture, uh, you know, even though it's, it, it is open source, there's a lot of people come and do minor contributions. There's a few people, handful of people that do major contributions to 
to what's now called Bitcoin Core, but it was always Bitcoin D. And um, people, you know, the, the, it, it's a necessity to kind of go along or you won't get your code into the code base. And um, um, as a result, it really stifles conversation, I think. And I'm, I don't care. I, I don't never put any code in the code base and don't intend to um, in Bitcoin D. And uh, we have a full stack that implements this much or more and um, is, is, it's also C++, but it's, it, it's never been based, it's never been a, a fork or a derivative of Satoshi's implementation. Uh, it's a complete re-architecture and redesign uh, more than once. Um, and so we look at things differently. We have a different perspective from a technical standpoint and also from kind of a community standpoint. Um, and he, he created that. And I, um, I look at it as my role to finish it because um, he was never the kind of guy to put polish on things. And, you know, I, that, that's, yeah, I made software that, you know, my main customers were Fortune 500 companies when I <laughs> they sold the company. Um, so you kind of, you know what it, you know, know what it has to be like to, to really put it out um, and support it on a large scale. And so a lot of time on um, uh, API consistency, quality tests, um, maintainability, you know, those kind of things, performance. Um, um, did a lot of prototyping and, and uh, tossed that out and, and take, took the lessons learned. And, and so that's, that's where we are now. Um, you know, Bitcoin D has a very different approach because there's so many people that want to have a say and there's a lot of use. So there's a lot of risk. And so it's very incremental. It's very cautious. Um, but um, it, it also doesn't like to, it doesn't like to see design change, right? There's only one, one true design. So we, we do things just very, very differently um, from the time Amir started to, to now, which is a very different thing than Bitcoin D. Very cool, man. And uh, so, so what is like the real technical difference then between the two at the end of the day? Technical difference? Um, well, I mean, you know, protocol's the same. The consensus is, is the same as Bitcoin. Um, we also, with, with, a, with a configuration change, you run Litecoin, you know, you run RegTest, mainnet testnet on Litecoin and Bitcoin. So you have like six coins for maintaining, but it's almost no code difference at all. <laughs> and, um, but... But there, I mean, I could I could sit here and rattle off technical differences. Um, um, but one, you know, one one difference is it's a developer library. There's ten repositories in GitHub, um, including a build system repository. Um, the, the the base repository system is just a set of tools for uh, hashing. Um, you know, limited amount of encryption that's in Bitcoin, uh, type system, serialization, deserialization, stream classes, um, you know, all, just all kinds of fundamental stuff um, that you need when you work in Bitcoin. Um, and some odd things that, you know, you might not expect, they're not even in Bitcoin, some crypto stuff that uh, Amir and some other people had put in that's, um, that's not really Bitcoin, um, but it's relevant to, you know, some experimental stuff, I guess. Um, like ring signatures, for example. Oh, um, we, like, we like those. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right, it's, it, you know, if somebody wants to do that and write the tests and get and put it into our quality, take it. It makes sense. Um, but most of it is, is actually used directly in, in Bitcoin. There's a small, small amount of those kind of additional crypto tools. And so there's... Um, uh, then there's a there's a database repository which implements its uh, you know a hand rolled database which Amir created um, after so he made the switch to Level DB which he didn't like I think before Bitcoin D made that switch and then dropped it you know after they made that switch and went to a, um, a memory map file uh, based uh, set of tables hash tables and arrays and that's what we use and I spent a lot of time on that. Um, uh, resolving some of the some of the issues that were left behind from that um, fault tolerance, hard shutdown, leading to store corruption, things like that, um, and uh, paging delays or um, 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 what's the other what's the other kind of main issue? I mean, the main the main issue was the uh, the the hard shutdown issue, but we get, we get an in-memory database that's, you know, constant time lookup. And, um, if you've got enough RAM, it's entirely memory resident. So it's extremely fast. And with, um, building towards the future, we can, we can, you know, we can swap out one, you know, one little underlying map file and, and run on top of it NVRAM implementation with no, with no changes, which is awesome. All right. So um, anyway, that so I, I spent a lot of spent a lot of time reworking, redesigning um, the database, and um, it's 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 just completely hand rolled and designed for Bitcoin. Um, Would you say there's a difference philosophically between those that are working on Core and like you and Amir and that group? Um, some, some people. Uh, or like yeah. how you guys philosophically view Bitcoin, or how you view the value proposition of Bitcoin, is it is it the same, or or do you guys kind of view? I, I think most of the serious core developers, pretty much the same. And it's not like when, when we when we have like disagreements about things, typically they're technical, but they're not philosophical. Um, there's there's a lot of philosophical, uh, techno philosophical debate going on right now about about. Um, you know, as a consequence of this um, NFT nonsense um, about preventing people from doing things that are possible, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what Bitcoin calls policy. You're talking and, about ordinals right now. Yeah, yeah. And so, policy. There's, there's, there's always been what we call policy in Bitcoin. At a minimum, the minimum necessary policy in Bitcoin is um, if you're going to if you're if you're going to create a um, if you're going to accept transactions, which somebody has to accept if they're going to mine them, if they're going to accept transactions from the wild, you have to have a minimum fee policy. Otherwise, you just get you just get flooded with uh, costless junk, right? And overflow your memory or your disk. And Bitcoin people, Bitcoin D people, refer to that as the mempool. I, I never, you know, if, if I'm doing that, it's by accident. It's it's a transaction pool, right? And Bitcoin the Bitcoin doesn't store it in RAM, so we don't call it a mempool. We call it a transaction pool. Um, and anyway, so so there's this one policy that's necessary. Um, the other policies, um, some of which either intentionally or inadvertently made their way into, as, as consensus 
um, don't really make a lot of sense to me. So there's there's consensus rules that are done for the that were done either intentionally or accidentally and kind of serve the purpose of trying to protect Bitcoin from having too much junk in the chain, right? <laughs> the exit data that's not necessary. And then there's non-consensus rules that try to do the same thing. And there's a there's a discussion going on right now about you know the legitimacy of these things. So there's some people that you know put non-monetary transaction data onto the chain, um, and they kind of therefore defend the right of anybody else to do the same. And other people don't like that. But there's also things like dust transactions. Um, there's um, standard you know, standardness rules, this whole set of policy rules. There, then there's consensus rules about just stupid things like, you know, you have to have one Coinbase and it has to be the first transaction. It has to have a null input. And all these, these, these things are just designed to kind of constrain what people can do so they don't put, like, well, God, what if you put two Coinbases in one transaction? What would happen? You'd be wasting space. I guess that's why it was restricted or it was just maybe simple implementation. But um, why does the input of a Coinbase have a null point on it? It, it, it should just be not there. Um, so some of these are just implementation artifacts of the early work that Satoshi did, and some of them are just a, like dust rules or just attempts to minimize um, what ends up on the chain. But the reality is consensus is the only thing that actually controls that. So people are going to do what, they, what they're going to do. And there's this philosophical debate about whether, you know, some people should try to control what other people do despite it not being consensus. What, what yeah. is your, so what is your take on that? So like something like with ordinals, that's. My take is people can try to stop it if they want. <laughs> right. Fine. Go ahead. Um, let, let the free market do what the free market. Well, the do. free market's going to do what it's going to do. I don't, I don't really have to have an opinion on it. It's right. going to do it. Right. Um, and nature will find a way. Well, all you, you know, people think that like the mempool that they, you know, that has some sort of control doesn't, it? it's just a way to, you know, it take, takes a half a second, you know, for a transaction to go from here to a minor. And really, really the only people should care about unconfirmed transactions are minors. Um, you know, you might want to know that your transaction is kind of making its way to the miners or something, you know, but, but really why else would you, would you care? I mean, people, people like zero conf, but this is another, another case where, you know, you really don't have consensus control over that. So, um, uh, anyway, the, the idea of pooling transactions is just so that you can generate, you know, find a block and, and, and mine it. Um, and, you know, you can just set up a website and say, post me your crappy transactions and bypass the entire mempool and just mine them, right? Is mempool is just a convenience um, for, the, for, for miners to be able to get transactions and to do it sort of anonymously, uh, sort of. Um, but yeah, people are gonna people are gonna do what they're gonna do, and, and I don't, you know, my, my my approach has always been to not try to stop people what they, from doing what they can do by consensus. There's no point in that. Um, and what we've seen over time is that there continues there continues to be these ways to evade those types of restrictions that end up being more costly than if you just didn't have the restrictions at all. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, I have never implemented policy in the Bitcoin, just just the fee rate policy, which is necessary for DOS protection. And um, there's other things that never implemented. Um, Amir wasn't a fan of BIP 37, and uh, no, neither was I. And 
and never implemented it. And now it's just going away. <laughs> so it turned out to be the right call. Um, I just want I would stick on ordinal. I was going to try to get the ordinals later, but since we brought it, I want to stick on it just a little bit. So like the, so the permissionless of it, so you can, you know, let, let whatever people are going to use the, the block space for, they're going to use it for, if they can use it, whatever way. Uh, um, but what do you think of the potential fungibility ramifications? I was, I know we're going to touch about upon this, I think, in a couple of different ways. But do you I don't know how does it, how does it impact fungibility? Uh, okay, well, that's your. So you're saying you, you don't think it does in any way, uh, ordinal? I guess I'm asking you. Like I, I haven't really thought about it, but I don't, I don't see uh, how. I guess this idea that the the way the ordinal system works is it's kind of uniquely identifying each satoshi, right? I guess I, I haven't looked into how it works. I, I really don't care that much. Okay. Uh, right. I mean, any any transaction that follows a pattern, right? You, you, like pay to script hash, whatever. At least they follow patterns, so you can identify something about the patterns. You you, you can identify something about how, um, say, um, UTXOs get selected by wallets. You can use that to identify aspects of the wallets. And and if and if this process is 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 creating patterns around, you know, outputs, then yeah, it, it can, but you don't have to use it. So who cares? Right. And if you got your money from somebody else who was doing it, is it not fungible? Well, no, it's perfectly fungible and money's money, right? The, the, the question is only, uh, it comes back to privacy and tainting. If you can taint anything, then, then, then you've got a fungibility problem it, to the extent that somebody can enforce censorship over that taint right if if it's if it's not enforceable then your your money remains fungible um or if nobody cares to enforce it right it doesn't have to be censorship at by miners for confirmation it could be a wallet right somebody doesn't want to take your money because it's been tainted and they can see that right that's not that's not confirmation censorship that's just people don't want to take the money um so you know, Bitcoin doesn't, you know, coin is easily tainted and that's one of the problems. And, um, that's, but that's not unique to, that's not unique to these ordinals NFT stuff. Maybe. No, no, no. It just seems like it's, uh, another layer of, you know, making it, making it more, more obvious, uh, to some that Bitcoin, uh, is taintable. Um, I've, I've, you know, I've certainly always thought it was, but I think the ordinals kind of makes it even more obvious. I, I mean, I don't know. It sounds like people are putting pictures on the, you know, end of the data. I don't know how that makes anything more or less tameable, unless you put a picture of yourself up there or something. I don't know. Well, no, yeah, they're they're putting pictures, but then they're also my understanding is the way that the the satoshis now they're they're being classified using the ordinal system, where each satoshi is basically uniquely identified. Well, how do you get the identity? Where does it come uh, from? Some some system that they're they're using to basically analyze a satoshi, and then I, you know, I'm right, not. Right. Well, so it goes back to the original problem, which is right. Bitcoin's tainable. Publishing yeah. the taint on the chain is really not making it less tainted or more tainted. Sorry. Right. It, it, you know, if you do it in private, you don't tell anybody about it. Tell anybody about it, and then you apply your censorship over that. It's the same problem. Yeah. Um, so I, I, the the. The issue goes back to if you want to transact privately and you can't, then you've got an issue, whether somebody publishes that data or not. You know, yeah, yeah. Secondary yeah. issue. 
So um, how, how do you think about Bitcoin's fungibility then overall? This, you know, so this ability to, to taint coins, do you, how do you well, see that playing out? Do you think that is an issue for Bitcoin if it's trying to be censorship resistant money or you're well, saying it's something that gets overcome? There's, there's two issues. One is, can you, can you identify what you want to censor? And two is, can you censor, right? You can, if you, I mean, clear, clearly Bitcoin, altcoin, altcoins have a have a have a censorship risk in that somebody can simply mine and demand identity so so as long as long as you have a uh, 51% attacker for example in bitcoin or majority staker in in some other shitcoin um, you you can extract identity in order as a condition of transacting Right. Just just like the legacy financial system does, you can demand an ID. If you, you know, show me your show me your driver's license, your passport. If you want to if you want to submit this transaction, just like you have to do with every other electronic transaction in the world outside of, you know, Bitcoin like stuff. So um, that the the ability to to censor at, at mining gives you the ability to um expose every single output <laughs> um, and every single output that's ever going to get spent. Um, so that's really a primary consideration, right? If, if people don't, people don't uh, consider how they avoid a sensor, but think that they can be, you know, private in the face of a sensor, they're mistaken. Right? If, 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 you can't be private in the face of a sensor with any of these coins. The sensor is just going to say, tell me who you are, or you're not getting confirmed. And therefore, your money is not only not fungible, it's not money. Mm -hmm. um, it's not money, white market or black market. Right? So that's, that's the primary issue always, is that this, to be censorship resistant, you have to be able to counter... Um, a majority hash power. Um, then, you know, if you can get yourself confirmed, if you can counter majority hash power, then what's your concern about censor? Then what's your concern about fungibility slash censorship? Well, your concern is that you're getting confirmed, but they know who you are and they know what you're doing. And so somehow there's going to be consequences for that, right? And nobody, you know, people won't want to pay the consequences, so they won't accept the transactions, et cetera. So now you're talking about exchanges and other what I could just what I call merchants, people accept the coin. People accept the coin are intimidated into not accepting it, despite the fact that it can be confirmed technically, then they won't. And um, I always make the point that the other, the other rule that's very hard and fast about this is um, the only thing you have to do to eliminate um, the use of some aspect of any of these coins that um, the state doesn't want you to use is to make it illegal. That's it. The white the white market will it, the white market won't do it. Otherwise, there'll be black market, right? By definition. So, if you want to eliminate certain say a certain type of transaction, you know, you want um, you just you want to eliminate a transaction that doesn't have identity associated with it. In other words, you have to provide your identity in order to transact. Well, I can't see. I can't enforce it through hash power, so I can't demand your identity. But I can enforce it in the white market. So in other words, you can't spend your coin. Nobody will take it anywhere at any any major exchange, any business that has you know that pays taxes. 
is not going to take your money because it's simply not allowed unless you, you know, have identified yourself. So there goes your, there goes your privacy. Um, so what you're left with is uh, the, the um, privacy uh, and fungibility of these monies exists only in the black market. And it only exists if the black market can um, counter majority hash power. Those are, those are two hard and fast criteria, right? White market uh, has no defense against censor or transparency. None whatsoever. I don't, I don't care you know, how fancy your Monero cryptography gets. You, you cannot, um, in the white market, be private. Uh, all if, if the state wants the ident identity, it's going to get it. It's just gonna. It's just gonna say you need to get it. <laughs> so right, right. But you're, you're you're giving your identity, but you're not necessarily uh, showing your trail of transactions. And absolutely, you're not you are. You're showing your you're, you're you're not going to put any transactions in. So two two situations. One is white market transparency. The other one is majority hash power control. If you're the state and you have majority hash power control. You have total transparency over anything that happens in the future, which means you can demand a total history over everything that happened in the past if you want to allow anything to happen in the future. You have total transparency or the chain stops, right? N nobody's transacting anymore. You have total transparency up to the extent that you want it for any transaction. You can demand that somebody tells you where they got the coin and they don't prove it. That to, if it's not proven to their satisfaction, no transaction. And then just keep working your way back. Contract trace that coin. So if you have majority hash bar control, you can enforce it at the source. If you don't, you can enforce it in the white market. You can simply say, if you accept transactions at your business, you must get them cleared through this web service, right? <laughs> Banking service. Or you can't take a coin unless it implements um, our, you know, policy, right? And that just means that, you know, you can't use, you're not going to be able to use the coin anywhere in the white market unless you say, just take it to the minimum, you know, provide identity, right? You're, I'm not taking your money unless you prove to me who you are and maybe where this money came from, which is pretty much the bar that already exists throughout the entire white market in electronic money today. And I think it would be naive to assume it's just going to go away because we came up with this new thing so the well i mean when, when i go spend my cash i don't have to tell them where i, I got it that's, that's one of the reasons cash is going away well i know they're trying but we're, we we, st we still you know are right you could go spend your cash right now and you're it's not yeah that. and you could spend lumps of gold you could do right. you can do those things if you trust the people you're you're transacting with but yeah if the state says if you not you, you're i'm sure you're aware that this is the case right if i take if I take $10,000 out of my bank, my bank's going to go and tell the state that I did it and they're going to want my ID, et cetera. Right. So, uh, and those, those restrictions are getting tighter and tighter. Um, we got now reporting restrictions, I think down to $600 on 1099s in the U S so that happened last year. So, um, there are many, there aren't many even cash transactions that legally you can do nowadays, um, privately. I mean, you can buy your coffee. Um, but, Cash is eventually going to go away. And the reason for Bitcoin is to provide an electronic cash 
that you know, has that has that private capability, you know, privacy associated with it that paper money or or tangible money has, or gold money, silver money, right? So yeah, you can still transact with tangible money, but if the state says you can't, now you're black market. That's kind of my point from the start, right? This and it's probably going to say you can't. The cash will go away, um, and you'll be left with everything is completely transparent in the white market. Um, and Monero, Bitcoin, whatever, is not going to change that in the white market. I, I don't, you know, I don't know why, I don't know how people can believe that the state just won't pass the law, right? I mean, you, it might not happen, but the coin has no ability to stop it. Yeah, That's of course. Right. So if we wanted, it, you know, it, it becomes, a, this, this is a political argument. Well, it's, you know, Bitcoin's too popular. We could never... We could never, they, they could never pass these laws. Like, well, gold's popular, money's popular, you know, pretty much all the things that are banned are the most popular things. So that's, that's not really true uh, that they can't. But the point is that there's nothing in the implementation, in the security model that stops it. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin security model extends only to those who are willing to not obey the law. And then if you're not, if you're willing to not obey, then you know you can you can use it, <laughs> but if right. you if you obey right. it, all they have to do is say no, and you're done. Right. But I, I guess where that leads me then too is that Bitcoin really isn't built well for that use case, as in terms of being black market money. No, I don't think it's, uh, it's lack of. Uh, well, it, it's not business. not for the not for not for most people. I mean, it is possible to transact privately in Bitcoin, uh, it's just not easy. Um, you know, it's, it's fully pseudonymous. So your taint has to come from somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's my opinion. That's the reason for core development is to continue to improve on, um, privacy in Bitcoin. Um, you know, the, the, the censorship issue from a majority hash power standpoint is, is, is the other big issue. My, you know, there's, there's privacy in terms of transaction tainting and, and linking of transactions, but there's also, um, as I pointed out, a significant issue in terms of majority hash power um, control. I mean, it's, it's, some people seem to think it doesn't matter how, you know, how centralized mining gets. It's, it's not a problem because we can just have delinked transactions, and that's bullshit. If you if you if you if you uh, have perfect privacy in your transaction linkage, but you can't prevent majority hash power control, you have no privacy at all. So um, those those two things have to get better. Um, there's a there's a premium to being um, a large miner. The the bigger you are, the the better your profit margin is going to be, and that's. In, you know that's an aspect of the design uh, of Bitcoin. So that's a, that's a problem because the larger the miner you are, the more likely you are to be um, shut down, identified. Right? It's not easy to hide when you're big. It's easier to hide when you're small. Uh, so if everybody you know if everybody was mining on small amounts of you know power, it might not be noticeable and be very hard to shut down. But if you're constantly losing money doing that, it's not going to happen. So that's a problem. Um, in terms of uh, keeping the cost of mining unapproved transactions 
at least fair with the cost of mining approved transactions. In other words, you want the profit margin to be the same. It's not going to be less in the other direction. You want them to be the same because uh, that that minimizes your cost of paying for uh, the premium you're going to have to pay to get black market miners to mine those illegal transactions. Um, I mean, there's going to be a premium for doing what's illegal. um, And the presumption is it's illegal because it's not allowed. It's permissionless. So we're doing what's not allowed. So um, keeping that premium uh, eliminating that premium is, is ideally what we want. We don't want there to be a premium for being large when it comes to mining. Um, and the other thing we want is, is we want uh, people to be able to uh, transact privately, right, without – I mean, taint is going to exist. We don't want the taint of, of one transaction to affect those it transacts with. Um, so, so we've got mixers, you know, um, I, I don't, I, I know Monero does a lot of things and I'm, I'm just not familiar with the, with the details, but those are the types of things that, you know, we, we don't want, to, we don't want obscurity, which is what we get with mixers because it's not good enough, um, which I think has been shown many times. Um, but it's not, it's not the area I work in and I, I've never even, you know, never done anything with a mixer. So, um, but I, 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 I have pretty good confidence from a technology standpoint to, to, to have faith that we're going to get to the point where transaction coupling is going to be much, much weaker. Um, and um, I have some confidence that we may be able to tackle the uh, mining premium problems. It's, it's, um, it's interesting that the, the two main problems you're bringing up are the problems that Monero has claimed to to solve or uh, is is you know focused on, right? So privacy, mm-hmm. um, and then the mining. So I don't know if you if you're aware, Monero is ASIC resistant and it's primarily mi- it's mined by CPU. So there's there's no advantage over centralization for Monero. Uh, it's as of now, it's maintained its uh, ability to be CPU mined. Um, so that's I, are you aware of that? I, I don't. Know, I don't know the details. I just. I just tend to speak in generalities when it comes okay. to this. And and basically, you know, anything can be more efficiently. Anything can be. Any algorithm can be more efficient with specialized hardware. So that's yeah. Well, I mean, the way it's it's random X is is the proof of work. That Howard Schoen invented, um, and it's it's. Basically, the, the CPU is the ASIC of, of Monero, the general CPU. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I, I, I don't know the specifics. I've seen, I, I've seen a lot of different attempts to, to, to deal with this situation, and they usually fall apart when I look too closely. Um, I'll give you, give you one example. Uh, Chia. Chia was going to be green. You know, they weren't going to be whatever. They're going to be green. They're going to use space as, you know, hard drive spaces as your as your mining criteria and uh as soon as i read the paper us uh, it was like right when it came out it said all you're going to do is create an explosion in hard drive manufacturing it's, it's not you know and it with exactly the same amount of energy being consumed to produce and ship and destroy hard drives um and install them and it was a couple of years later i i had a i had a discussion with uh, uh Chia guy um, uh, online. What's that? I don't know the Chia project too well. Why am I blanking the name? Um, 
Bit, uh, BitTorrent. Who's who's the BitTorrent creator? Um, uh, I don't know his name. Oh God. Well, he's in. You know. <laughs> so he, he raised like twenty million bucks and wrote a paper. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gonna we're gonna basically have proof of space. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Instead of proof of computation, yeah. and the whole point of mining is that. Um, it's going to consume in cost, you know, the, the total reward. That, that's just an economic reality. So using free space in your drive sounds great until you realize that, you know, your profit margin is climbing, you know, exponentially, right? You, you, you never buy any new space, but you're the only, you know, you and all the people with the free space are mining and there's never any, you know, really materially any more free space. It just, so you just keep reusing this over and over again. It's not, there's no cost yeah. to you whatsoever. And you just keep reaping greater and greater rewards. So you realize that somebody else is going to want to capture those rewards and they're going to start using, buying new hard drives. And then they're, you know, they're going to start buying them to the, you know, so if you take, if you take the entire Bitcoin reward for a year and divide that by, you know, you know, whatever, $50 a terabyte, right? You'll figure out how many, how many hard drives you're going to consume to, uh, to consume that reward because it has to be a new cost, right? It's, it's not just, Oh, I've got the hard drive. I'm good for like the next century. It's going to be a new, drive. it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So anyway, I, I pointed that out and they, you know, it was a lot of resistance. And then, um, a couple years later, I got a, I got a, I got a private message from one of the PhDs that they had worked on the team, there was a big falling out and they realized, you know, that I was right all along and they, and they reset and they became proof of stake or something. And can, can you please take a close look at Monero? I want to make sure I'm not wasting my time over here, man. Jesus. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm surprised with Amir actually, because Amir, Amir is a, a big uh, Monero advocate. Uh, I mean, I'm not, if I was, you know, I don't know anything about Monero except just to take the time to look at it. I'm surprised he wasn't like, here, re- read this, check this out. Let me know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I focus on Bitcoin because it's, um, I want to get this project done and, you know, it's, it's you. important to me. Um, but it's it's not like, uh, you know, I don't reject everything else. Um, that That's that's certainly not true. I, I think anything that follows the principles that Satoshi laid out is is consistent um, and fine. And, but, um, you know, there's certain, there's certain principles. So I, I tend to look at things from a very high level abstract point of view. And to me, like, okay, if, if, if you can make something that can never be improved upon with an ASIC, it doesn't really change any, anything from my perspective. It just, it just means that, okay, buying, you don't buy ASICs, you buy chips. Okay. So, um, you know, ASIC manufacture is not the central, the centralization problem in Bitcoin mining, even though a lot of people like to think it is. So to me, like, and also I, I, I uh, uh, Graham, Bram, is it Bram Cohen? Anyway, I'm keeping trying to remember his name. I think it was Bram. Uh, you know, I, I was like, look, there's nothing wrong with Chia. Just, just got to realize it's not solving the problem you think it's going to solve. It, it's still going to consume as much energy as Bitcoin, and if it's if it has as much, if it has the same reward level, uh, right, which means people are paying for fees, et cetera, and the prices, whatever it is, then it's going to have the same energy consumption. And that turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. Well, so it, it, there was, no, in my mind, there's nothing wrong with using that energy to manufacture hard drives right? versus, you know, just burn um, power. Um, it's just a lot more complicated. And um, so it's kind of like the same thing, the distinction between, say, ASICs and CPUs. Well, yeah, if you've got to go make, 
if you got to go make ASICs to do the mining to be competitive, that's just a, that's a cost. But CPUs a cost. Everything it's, it's that that's really not what creates. It's not what creates the um, the advantage to large mining in, in Bitcoin. The, the 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 two advantages to large mining. One is being all in one place geographically reduces the relay time mm-hmm. um, when a block is discovered, and as a consequence, you mine more blocks on your dis- on you you have less time wasted mining on um, old blocks, uh, old block headers, uh, uh, because you're closer to your own blocks, and because you're larger, you're put you know in a, in a fair system, right? If you had 90% of the hash power, you'd be producing nine out of 10 blocks. Well, if you're producing nine out of 10 blocks, you're seeing nine out of 10 blocks faster than everybody else. Um, and that's not, that doesn't mean one company. That means it's just geographically closer. Um, and a lot of people would argue, oh, latency doesn't matter anymore because compact blocks, blah, 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 blah. And th- that's really the opposite of the case. What, what, what's happened is you don't, you don't see as many orphans um, because this is what you would expect is mining is heavily centralized. You would expect to see fewer orphans, right? So we have a very heavily centralized system. Um, and you're, you're seeing fewer and fewer orphans as if you, if the system was highly distributed, despite fast relay time, you would see more orphans. Um, and so, so that advantage to being all in one place geographically is one of the things that's, it's kind of built in. It's a light speed issue, right? Only, data can only move so fast. And it doesn't really matter whether you're mining on ASICs, GPUs, CPUs, or you know, hamster wheels. It's, it, it, everybody's gonna mine on what's most optimal to mine on that they know about and is available. But then the, the other aspect you have of, have of it is, is um, 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 what's the proper term? Uh, your your payments coming infrequently, right? So, um, as a smaller miner, your um, God, let's see. My, as I'm getting older, my memory is just getting worse and worse. Um, um, your the infrequency of your payments creates an increased capital cost for you as a smaller miner, right? If you get paid once every year. Uh, even if you're getting a fair proportional payment to the amount of hash power you put in, you get paid once a year, which means you have to borrow money to cover your costs, you know, in, until that point where you, where you've, your, your investment is paid off and you're, um, um, and you're reaping some reward. So you're paying interest on the, on that, that time. And, um, um, so you're saying pools give you an advantage, obviously. Right. Well, I mean, these two reasons are the reasons people pool. Right. If, 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 you, if you didn't have these problems, there would be no reason whatsoever to pull. You would just fire up your miner on your desktop, like, you know, like in the old days, and you would get a proportional reward to the amount of energy you put in, right? There would be no problem. So the reason people pull, they started pulling this because these, these forces became fairly obvious. Um, there's, an, there's a premium to proximity. The closer you are together, um, they, the, uh, the faster you see new blocks um, that are coming out. If you, if you never produce any blocks, you're never seeing, you're never getting that advantage. Um, and then, um, you know, if you're, if you're only uh, solving a block, you know, once every 10,000 years, you don't even know if your system's working, right? Um, 
And it, it, if it's coming once a month, maybe you know, you know, it's probably configured right. And it's working, but your 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 payments are um, are spread out too far. You join together with a large, you know, bunch of miners, and now you smoothed out your payments, which is a cost reduction. That's a real business cost, capital cost, and um, you're seeing you're you're actually proportion disproportionately uh, obtaining more blocks as a group because you're larger and seeding faster. So um, it's, it's variance is the term I was looking for. I don't know why I couldn't think of it. Uh, so, so you have a you have a variance discounts your profits, right? I, we call, I call it the variance discount, um, and proximity gives you a premium, right? You, so it's a, there's a premium for being closer together, and there's a discount in your profits for high high variance. Um, those two things are are basically built into the protocol. Nobody's um, and that's why I'm not as as confident that you know we're necessarily going to solve them. Um, there there are some attempts. There's some attempts. Some people I work with, and you know Bob McElrath has had a long you know long-standing attempt to to deal with this issue with this braids pool idea. And there's others. You know, the Peter pool was the first, but it it suffers from a number of um, drawbacks, which are, make it even worse. Um, I, I actually mined on Peter Pool for some time. I mind I mind Litecoin on Peter Pool. It worked fine. It's you know a super simple setup, totally you know decentralized. But but it, I'm not making you know not making as much money as somebody's in the central pool. Yeah, Monero uses a P2 pool. Uh, Peter Pool, yeah, that's that's that, yeah that's, for it, that purpose, and it's it's growing in usage and and the way more money is. Uh, my understanding is you get you get high, higher payout using that versus other pools it's just we're not oh, yeah. seeing everybody poured over yet just because it requires a little bit more uh work essentially to get it up and running in terms of ease of use well i, I mean if you're talking about peter pool the one that was created for bitcoin litecoin others years ago um that i, that I use peter pool has significant known deficiencies in terms of uh, cost advantage um and- yeah, this is this is different this is a, a, a monero you know, created by the Monero community. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but but the, the problem the problem is always when you, when you have a truly decentralized pool, is um, you have to deal with payment ag- payment aggregation, um, and you if you have a real cost for putting data on the chain, that cost continues to rise as more people participate in the in the pool, and you also have uh, significant latency issues. Um, uh, that uh, not my area of expertise, but but you have you have pay, payment cost and latency issues that are significant enough to make it not viable on Bitcoin. Um, and I would be curious to see how how that would be any different on any other coin because um, you know a lot of smart. People yeah, I don't, I don't want to misspeak. Maybe maybe those issues do exist, but my understanding uh, to date is that 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 hasn't been. Well, if you have if you. Uh, if you have a uh, basically a free cost of block space, w- one of those issues is mitigated, right? The the the, the payout cost is dramatically mm-hmm. reduced if you're not paying uh, to get that uh, essentially that Coinbase transaction confirmed. Um, but then you still have the latency issue. Um, so I, I don't I don't work in you know in that area. There's some people that have worked with us that do. Um, you know, I, I spend most of my time just in the mundane engineering of, you know, making a, um, a performant node 
and software stack that can deploy easily, be reliable, and can su can support at some point um, large mining operations by independent individuals. Um, uh, what? Family. If you don't mind, I just want to go back kind of to the beginning. So, like, I know you you, you discovered Bitcoin. You had already you were aware of uh, you know other attempts earlier that weren't that weren't decentralized. But what what so what originally got you interested in the concept of digital cash? Like, what's the? Uh, um. What's the okay. So, uh, early mid nineties, I was still so I I finished school in um, eighty nine. And I uh, was in the Navy. And then by the time I was, you know, through flight school and everything, I was, I was programming again, just part time. And so, somewhere in there, um, you know, the, the Internet, I mean, I, I had used the Internet in college. And, you know, it had been around for a long time, but um, it became this new thing. And along with it came Phil Zimmerman, PGP, um, David Chung, DigiCash. Um, and those were both really interesting to me. So I remember I, you know, I got my first uh, BGP key pair and published it on the MIT key server. I think it was up there until a couple of years ago. <laughs> it was ancient. Um, and uh, um, I started using internet tel telephony apps and just, just goofing around, you know. Um, but I, I remember uh, I read, somewhere in there I decided to read Applied Cryptography because um, I didn't really get a, much of a basis in crypt, cryptography from, a, you know, university computer science degree. Um, and that was that was kind of exciting to me. And, and so, um, you know, messing around with PGP and reading that um, led me somehow to DigiCash and Chome. And I knew some of the people that were involved in the financing just weird connections through the Navy. Um, and I got some backstory on that, which I found interesting. And I was, I was reading the DigiCash patents um, and I found my name on one of them. And I was like, that's interesting. So I, so I emailed um, the company and this was like the beginning of email. It was still pretty, you know, at least in terms of general use. So I emailed the company and I didn't get a response back, but uh, so this other guy named Eric Bosco, um, was working with the company and, and his name was on the patents. Anyway, so uh, years went by and a few years ago, I was out in Berlin for some Web3 conference that they kept inviting Amir to and he wouldn't go to. So they finally got me to go. <laughs> so I was like the Amir substitute. And um, I was at a, uh, so we're in downtown Berlin at, um, I think it was Gavin, Gavin Wood's house. Um, you know, Ethereum guy and uh, Polkadot and all that. So he, he was kind of sponsoring the conference and he has, a, he has a flat in Berlin, first floor and, you know, kind of a fenced yard out there until he had a barbecue and I got invited over to it by the organizers and I didn't realize it was just like, it was a big conference, but it was just a small group of people invited and I didn't know who was invited. I didn't know what was going on. But anyway, I walk in there um, and a little bit later, David, David Chum walks in and he was speaking at the conference and I was like, holy shit, this is, you know, this is a guy I'd like to talk to. I'm, I'm almost always the oldest guy in the room when I go to anything Bitcoin. And I'm like, oh shit, now here's, here's a guy that's, you know, he's a, he's a previous generation. I know he's older than me. So I had a good talk with him and I, t I told him how I'd sent him that um, email back in the early nineties, um, 
early mid nineties about, about my, my name being on one of his patents. He's like, Oh yeah. Well, yeah. wonder what happened to that guy. He was a college hire. We pulled right out of, you know, the university in Amsterdam. My name is Dutch. Right. And they were, they were based in Amsterdam. And so I said, well, I, I looked him up. He's making, you know, he's making video game stuff out in San Francisco or something. Right. So that was, that was fun. And then Richard Stallman walks in. Um, and so, yeah, I had, had, had barbecue, you know, with Richard Stallman and David Chum, which I thought was fascinating. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and the next day, um, it was, I don't know if it was opening day, but the, the opening speaker was David Chum, mm. and then somebody else. And then Stallman had like the lunch slot on the, you know, it's all one stage, I guess, or main stage. And then Snowden was on video after that. And then I closed the day on that stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, really? this is really right. isn't fair, right? Really really I, isn't I had fair. Stallman on this show. It was an interesting conversation. He's oh, yeah. he's a little difficult to, to, to talk to. He's a uh, he's an interesting guy. I, yeah. I, I, he he was he's not a true believer. In, you know, he has concerns with the g- digital cash for per, you know uh, if it's completely untraceable. He doesn't necessarily think that might you know be. Yeah, the most you know, it's interesting. It's Which interesting. I was surprised to to learn from him. You know, and uh, I also we also had Phil Zimmerman. I had him at the la- last oh, wow. Monero conference. I had that him, would uh, be that would be cool. Yeah, yeah, he we had him at the conference. Well, he phoned it in. Um, and I actually formed a relationship with him because building up to the conference, we spoke on the phone quite a bit. But he also, I was surprised by his, you know, inventor PGP, you know, all, all these philosophical reasons wanting to uh, preserve liberty in the digital age through encryption. But seems like he had some concerns with true, private, untraceable digital cash. You know, yeah, the yeah. For that. Not, not everybody comes. Not everybody comes to this from the same perspective. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't think you could classify Stallman as a cypherpunk, right? And, right? and I don't know about Phil Zimmerman. I really don't know much about him. Um, but it'd be fascinating to meet him. Uh, anyway, I, it was it was interesting watching the, the you know these two giants of the world were in Stallman and 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 uh, Chom sitting directly across each other on somebody at somebody's picnic table out in the front lawn, you know, basically on the street in Berlin, having you know having some barbecue and having a conversation. Um, I don't know if they had met each other. If they had, it had been a long time, maybe not. Anyway, so so we're a few of us are just sitting around the table, kind of listening to this. And some of the people there were, were much younger, and I don't know if they quite got the gravity of the situation. But just being able to watch them have this conversation, it was very polite. It was all you know, all very cordial and kind of professional. But you could see there was some, there was definitely some differences between them. Um, Chom, I would say, is you know much more of your kind of libertarianish cypherpunk kind of in it for the privacy and the freedom, and and uh, Stallman is, um, from what I gather, much more of um, um, socialist communist type mindset than, than uh, so so they didn't you know they're 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 not the same, um, and uh, it it was it just kind of felt like it was. It was kind of everybody arguing with Stallman at some point, right? The, 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 uh, because it was all Web3 was all about privacy. This was a, a room full of Bitcoin, Ethereum, type, you know, kind of private money people, I guess. But yeah, it's, 
it's interesting. Just just because you're into open source doesn't mean you're into human liberty, I guess. Right. <laughs> do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans. And if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, gratuitous, and Monero. So what what is your what is your argument that you make when people, you know, bring up these concerns with true digital cash? You know, it could be used to fund terrorism. It's, you know, gonna allow for black markets to flourish on the internet. Uh, what, uh, how do you... I think the whole point is to allow black markets to flourish. So um, I, I agree, but I'm just curious. I'm curious yeah, how you? Uh, I, I I came I um, came at this stuff. Uh, so I was a I was a card carrying you know U.S. Libertarian Party member for like over 20 years. Hmm. Um, that started I think in 91. Uh, 92 somewhere. It was when I was in the Navy, certain events that got me, got me there. And then, um, you know, I, I just kept studying, reading like everybody else. And, um, so the, eventually I, you know, I, I, I read Rothbard and, you know, decided really I couldn't, I couldn't hold with the libertarian, you know, minarchism. And I just became a, what Rothbard would call an anarcho capitalist. Um, there's a lot of anarcho-communists around, um, so anarchism is kind of a weird word, but um, that's how I that's how I got you know, and it, it was from my libertarian mindedness, um, kind of still very fresh at that time period, and seeing uh, the um, what do we call them the um, crypto wars, you know, happening in the '90s, and then after 9/11, you know, that let all just the floodgates coming. Uh, opening. Um, so, you know, to me, I, uh, I like the tech, I like the technology and it's, it's an opportunity to work in something that I, um, that I can appreciate, you know, philosophically and politically as well. Um, I also find, you know, economic theory, interesting, fascinating, a long, long, long-term kind of study for myself. Um, and you know, I've done I've done lots of different businessy things and made products. So I, uh, um, you know, I've I've raised money, I've 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 invested, I've done all these things. And so this is you know, the, the 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 world of Bitcoin kind of gives me an opportunity to do all the things I enjoy for all the right reasons. And I, I really don't have to care too much about whether anybody approves or not. It's one of the reasons I like working um, on uh, a small project that. Um, I can be a major contributor to, um, and um, yeah, I don't. It's, as far as you know, how do I respond to people who you know want you know Panopticon money? I I just kind of you know I don't, what do what do I say? I like you, know, you, you people are always going to be out there. It's you know there's always going to be people that want to do that stuff. That's fine. This is uh, I I don't look at like. Bitcoin or anarchism is a way to take over. It's a way to opt out. To exist. Um, and that, that takes a, it takes a while to come to that conclusion, I think. Um, and that, um, you're not necessarily going to, you're not going to eliminate all the things that people do. 
but you don't have to contribute or participate so much. Um, and in many parts of the world, the black market is the only market. I mean, what functioning market is there in North Korea? There just really isn't one. Anything you want, you're, you're going to get you know, from the black market, even, even state officials. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I also think people tend to look at, at these questions from the perspective of the U.S. or the West in general. Um, reality is it's a, it's a big world and a lot of people benefit greatly from um, uh, being able to operate in the black market as they should. Um, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, you know, um, Ukraine, uh, Russia. We have all these all these different. Um, I mean, take North Korea, right? It, it just just all these different issues all around the world, China, um, parts of Africa. Um, pe people need to be able to you know keep their money, move it around um, without approval, and um, I think that's a good thing. So what do you, I mean, what do you see things, how do you see it working out 10, 20, 50 years from now? Is it going, there'll be, do you see it like there's, there's, there'll be a niche black market money, whether it's black market version of Bitcoin or it's Monero that, that, you know, uh, something like Monero that, that runs that space. And do you ultimately then just see it being niche and not getting too large. So it's those that want to opt out do and. You know, how, how do you see the dynamic playing out, the powers playing out? Like, what is I, I think, the end game? I think private money is always going to be under attack. Um, I think privacy is always going to be under attack. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I don't know if I'd call it niche. Um, the black market's about 25% of the world's economy. So that's pretty significant. Um that's bigger than any one state money. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, if you look at the world in terms of, you know, all these different aspects of black, black market versus white market, um, black market has to use white market money, right? There's an interaction between the two that's necessary. Um, and um, so the black market is not going to you know, ever be entirely um, black market money. Um, and, the white market, you know, kind of by definition, is entirely white market money. Uh, but you, you know, you look at the large banks that are always getting fined for money laundering. Are they black market? <laughs> they're always breaking the law, right? Um, so technically, they are when they're doing that. Um, or the the law is just so unclear that they have no way to know. You know that's also the case in a lot of scenarios. Um, but so there's this grayer reality, but from a from from a conceptual standpoint, you know, it's easy. It's 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 better to make these things clear when you're trying to explain how they work, right? Like I'm very clear that in the white market there will be none of this if the law doesn't want to allow it, right? By definition, it's just a definitional thing. The reality is people play both sides of that fence like banks do now, um, and that will always be the case. But it won't be just out in the open. That's what I mean, right? Um, and so uh, what do I foresee? I mean, I don't like, I don't like to make predictions, but what I think that the best you can, you can't assume that the benefit of a permissionless money is that you will get permission, right? So we have to start with the assumption that the security model matters. It's not just about voting because voting is the status quo and we haven't gotten there. 
right? Having given us this, if, if voting worked, we wouldn't need any of these monies. If we could achieve our privacy, et cetera, through, through voting. So we have to start with the assumption that's not going to do it. And you have to start with the assumption that you won't get approval. And that leaves you with, okay, well, this is useful in this black gray market area. And always that will always have to be the assumption. Otherwise, it's just not necessary. We don't have to do any of this stuff. So, um, so what, is it, what does the world look like, you know, centuries down the road? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Probably this bifurcation between um, ways people do things privately and the ways people do, do things publicly, which is largely, you know, it's been the case for a long time. Um, you know, in, in paper state money and currency controls have been around forever. And um, when things got bad with that, people would just go to gold, silver, you know, some kind of metal to as a safe haven. And that's still possible, but it's just not very feasible in our electronic world. And that's really, you know, Satoshi nailed the subtitle <laughs> because it's really what you need is a digital version of that. You need cash um, because cash is private. And um, if you want to operate an electronic economy, uh, private, you know, with cash, then you need something other than credit systems. Um, so I think that, yeah, there seems likely there's going to be continue to be a distinction between white market, you know, um, surveilled money and um, black market private money. And implementation-wise, I'm sure there'll be changes in evolution, but I... You know, I, I tend to think we're looking at a long-term evolution from where we are today. I mean, it's just the very beginning, right? Time goes on forever. When, when is this going to end? <laughs> when, when does this need for privacy end? So I think some people tend to look at it like, oh, Bitcoin's been around for like a decade and, it, you know, it's old news, right? But I look at it like, you know, maybe it's just because I'm older, but I look at it like, Jesus, fucking just getting started. Um, it's like the internet, you know, in the early days, you know, nerds sharing files between colleges. Okay. Yeah, it works. We can do it. And the security doesn't even exist, right? It's because it isn't necessary. It's, but it evolved and it's going to continue to evolve. Now, what, at what point is the internet just going to end? Like we don't need that anymore. Right. That, that seems unlikely. It seems like it's just going to continue to evolve and evolve and be something. That, and I think the same, same thing is kind of true of Bitcoin, where it's very early, extremely early. Um, and I think it's going to continue to evolve. And unless, you know, I mean, the Internet, communication, publication, um, uh, these things, the need for those things don't go away. And Bitcoin is money and the need for money doesn't go away. Um, you know, I guess if you're if you're a Star Trek person, money goes away. If you're a Star Wars person, you know, it's all credits. <laughs> but, but, you know, there are some people in Star Wars who demand real money and they say, no, I don't want your, you know, I don't want your credits. Why is that? Right. So even though Star Wars was a long, long time ago, um, imagine it's some distant future where money doesn't probably go away, uh, except in the kind of socialist Star Trek fantasy world where, you know, the economics of the future are different, as they said. But, um, yeah, so why, why, would it, why would it go away? So what, what I look at is a much, 
from my perspective, a much longer-term view on development than something like, you know, Satoshi's application. Uh, to me, that's, it's like, I look at that, it's like Mosaic, right? It's like the first graphical browser. And it evolved to Netscape, which was the same thing um, that, you know. And eventually, you know, it became something very different. And that's kind of the way I look at it. It's like we've got to get beyond um, this application monolith to be able to build things that are truly um, uh, decentralized and not um, and not fragile, not impossible, not poorly performing, not uncompetitive. Um, and uh, so that's I think I think that evolution is going to require that, and that's why I work on it. Uh, I mentioned like NVRAM implementation before. I'm mean, like, okay, people are all freaked out about like how much storage space Bitcoin takes up. It goes back like the NFT thing, right? Like mm -hmm. Satoshi looked at this. I looked, I looked at this in the very beginning. I'm like, okay, we, we have we have linear growth of the chain. Okay, we we bumped it up four x. Okay, so we've got linear growth times four now. Still linear growth, right? Um, so we got linear growth forever unless we do something else, make it even bigger. But we've got We've got linear growth of the chain, and we've got Moore's Law. Moore's Law is not ending anytime soon, as far as I know. We have not reached the thermodynamic limit of, of computational power. Um, and so the amount of storage space, I mean, we're still under a terabyte, right? A terabyte now is $50 off the shelf. <laughs> for, 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 we're, we're talking about... Um, SSD store. It's not even like a disk drive, which would be even cheaper than that. Um, and you can get it on a you know a little, little little SIM card, right? So you can put the entire chain on a little SIM card that costs like fifty bucks or maybe a hundred bucks for one of those, and that's going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And you have an exponential curve laying on top of a linear growth curve. I looked at that from the beginning. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm, I'm building for that. <laughs> I'm building for the case where it costs nothing to store this chain and it's immediately retrievable in RAM. And I've been, you know, okay. Fine. Yeah. Um, it, it, why, do, why do I have a mempool then? Hmm. Right? It, everything's going to be. So that's the way I look at these things. It's very different. I want to I wanna build, I want to have this tiny little, you know, processor that you can, you can put in anything and it'll tell you whether something's money or not. You know, is that money? You know, I, I don't want to have to lug my desktop around to figure it out. Um, I don't want to have to, you know, um, install Bitcoin Core to figure it out. <laughs> I just want this little embedded system that says, okay, that's money. Um, uh, just like you, you know, as easily as you can look at a, you know, $10 note and go, okay, that's, that's probably money. Um, because that's, that's kind of an essential thing. Any, if we're trading with money, then that's the essential thing. And that's kind of what, that's what Bitcoin does. And you can't outsource it to somebody else, no more than you can outsource your router to somebody else. Right? Your router has to be where you are. And so Bitcoin is like a money router. And the blockchain is like the routing tables. It's the history. It, it, it's what tells you what's legit, right? And so we have a very similar analogy. You need hardware to run it on. You run on general purpose hardware. You need... You need, you need to run it yourself, and it's really just a cache of public data. Right? The blockchain is public data. Even transactions are public. There's nothing private about it. There's no reason to encrypt it, um, hide it, hide, you know, tunnel it, or anything like that, except for maybe you don't want anybody to know that you're, you have money. Um, so 
from a black market money perspective, there, you know, there is a reason to maybe hide your using it, but all of the data is just a cache. Everybody's got it. There's no secrets uh, except for your keys. So, but you, uh, you're saying, but you theoretically would want to hide it, right? If you can obfuscate the, no, the data itself is public. Anybody can get it, right? There's nothing about what's in the blockchain that's private data. So we don't, when people, it was a distinction I was kind of making and it gets lost uh, without some more background. But, you know, when you build a system like a banking system, the data is private. You're moving this data around through secret networks. You can't let the data be seen. Um, in Bitcoin, the data is public. Okay, so... If you, have a, if you have a system that moves public data around, and the only thing it's doing is giving everybody a copy of the cache, like the routing tables, right? You don't secure it. You don't, you don't secure the communications. You, you, you verify the data, right? Now, I don't, I don't really know how you verify routing tables, right? Like the data, how, does it, how is it verified? I don't know. I think you just trust the, the issuer. It's signed or something, but I don't know how I don't work in it. But with Bitcoin... If I have my software, I can verify the data. I can throw out whatever whatever's garbage. There's plenty of garbage. So I throw out the garbage and I keep the good stuff. But the data itself doesn't need to be encrypted. The network doesn't need to be private, right? Um, not to verify the integrity of the data. The only reason you want that, you would need that privacy is to not let somebody know that you care about the data. But you know, if everybody cares about the data to some extent, then you don't really even need to hide that. And that's kind of the way it is today, right? Like it's having the data... Um, is is perfectly um, is perfectly okay. It may not always be, and you may need to you know may need to resort to something like Tor, or hopefully something better that allows you to communicate the, the fact that you're using it privately, um, but not the, the contents of the data doesn't need to be secured in any other way except for verification, um, which is an integral to the data. This, and this kind of kind of gets down to design philosophy in in in. in in P2P network and stuff like that. I like that. Um, the data itself is, is, is what um, provides your denial of service protection, right? The, the price associated with the transaction, the, the fee associated with the transaction, et cetera. Um, beyond that, you just, you know, limit peers to how much query engine, query service time you're going to give them. But otherwise, you know, you're, you're just, you don't, you don't need any other denial of service protection. It's all, it's all based on, um, all based on price and validity, which is really an interesting aspect of the whole system. There aren't, there aren't other systems like that that I know of. Um, sure, there's got to be some. But um, what I mean, what, what do you think of the fact that you know Bitcoin isn't being used as much as it was as black market money? So, like, you know, actually on dark markets, uh, you know. Vendors are, are moving away from Bitcoin. They're moving towards Monero. Um, do you think that's indicative of it not working as digital cash? Um, you know, the, the weaknesses are, are well known. I, I don't. I, I really don't. You know, keep track of or even know what the. You know, you say people are moving. I, I don't know. I mean, to me, um, um, again, I might take a very long term view of these things and if there's technology improvements that we can use to make things more private maybe things in Monero's done um, you know, maybe that means using Monero or you know, moving those things into 
BTC. I'm not proprietary about these things. I look at it all as Bitcoin, right? When I say Bitcoin, capital B, I don't, I actually have a topic in my book that lays this out very clearly. Satoshi wrote a paper where the first use of the word Bitcoin exists. And he does not refer to the vast majority of things that make BTC a coin, <laughs> right? Like very, very little of the, of the consensus rules are actually described in there. So the concept of Bitcoin is just a concept, right? And the concepts, um, the, the things that make it what I call crypto dynamically secure, um, that give it its sense of ship resistance are laid out in the paper. Um, and so something that conforms to those principles is, is a form of Bitcoin. And um, there are many different ways you could form the consensus rules. The fact that they're changing and they've been changing with, you know, within BTC, um, you know, which basically means there's been a series of new coins that everybody's kind of moved over to or in some cases split into. We just keep the same stocks, you know, ticker on the one that's called BTC. But there's, you know, this is constantly evolving and they, but the, you know, we still conform to those principles that Satoshi laid out. So uh, one of the things that I anticipate is that over time, I mean, first of all, the market evolved a very kind of robust marketplace of different coins. Some of them are not what I would consider coins at all. Like they don't conform to those principles. They're just not there. There's some kind of scam or you know, naivete or something, but proof of stake, for example, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't have that security model. So, but you have got, you know, take Litecoin, for example, you get a set of these coins that are follow the same basic principles and have different trade-offs um, with the potential for atomic swaps between those coins and different level of security of those coins, right? So th those are engineering distinctions that people don't really care about. If you want to use your private money to do different things. Uh, I, I anticipate that eventually wallet software will just paper this over and you won't even notice the difference. You might be, you, you know, you might want to put some money into long-term storage, but it's a very high fee for the high security. So you say, yeah, you know, do that. You know, tell my wallet to do that. It does that, right? And you get it back and you don't know how it does it. How the hell, why, why the hell would anybody care? Most people wouldn't care. They just want to know that it's, you know, it's private, secure, et cetera. And, and that is one of the obvious solutions to scaling and security issues and trade-offs and sharding, et cetera, that, that, that people who want to see their coin go up in price don't want to consider. But I don't give a shit about price. So, um, I mean, I, I, I like the fact that people want to use it and that's reflected in the price. That's great. Um, and then it motivates people. But, you know, if you're in it as a casino, then you're in it, you know, you're not in it for the same reasons that I'm in it for. I want to see... I want to see a, uh, a viable money, and that doesn't doesn't mean one. To me, it doesn't make sense that it means one chain. I think the existence of different chains gives us the opportunity to to make different trade offs for different reasons. Litecoin, faster confirmation, lower level of um, security per confirmation, but you can wait much less time on average to get a confirmation. Okay, well then maybe it's better for buying your coffee. Right. If you take some money out of your long term storage and move it into that and then, you know, move some back. Um, to me, that makes sense. And I could imagine you could form, you know, 10 different chains of BTC of what is the same rule set as BTC, put a different Genesis block down and, and you know, or and make a minor changing to the minor change, the out mining algorithm. 
and you've got, okay, by, by any reasonable argument, you've got 10 of the same coin. It's just different, different usage, right? Um, so low usage ones, lower security, higher usage ones, higher security. Atomic swaps between them. Okay, what have you what have you done? I don't have to use the high security chains if I don't if I don't care about that low security. So now I've sharded my I've sharded my database, right? I, I've reduced my fees for low security transactions. I've, I've reduced my confirmation time if I want to. Um, I have greater transaction throughput, right? I, I can solve all those problems um, with that model, and and I think that's basically what the market's been doing. And to I think probably your interest bringing in different sets of rules. You know, that's the thought experiment, right? I have the same exact rules, just a difference in the mining algorithm to make them independent. But then, you know, if you've got some different rules that make things more private, for example, for some trade-off, then presumably uh, you can move in and out of that um, for a reason, for a cost. And I think that ultimately, you know, we are likely to see systems standardized on a set of chains that make up uh, what people call money. Similar, you know, analogy to, you know, different denominations. So you don't think that the, the network effect essentially then will just be around one chain, but it'll be around a group of change that fulfills well, the end goal of digital cash. Is the network effect around the dollar or the $10 bill? Why would anybody care? Uh, the 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 reason so I mean it's being a little bit facetious but the but the but the reason um, so people people have argued that well if you can have any number of chains um, so I, I call I, I use the term chain to refer to the history whereas coin refers to the rules so you get the same set of rules in two different histories right mm -hmm. it's, um, it's just question of what somebody happened to mine that day. So um, anyway, you, you could have, if you had any number of coins, um, then they'd all be worthless because there's unlimited supply. And this is just constant inability of people to understand what is meant by the term supply and the supply-demand relation that formulates price. Supply is not a quantity. Supply is a demand. It's just the demand of the other party. So the willingness of somebody to trade it for something else, a preference for, of it for something else. So as we see, so in Bitcoin, it's demand and demand determines price, right? It's the, um, the demand of the people giving it up and the demand of people wanting it in exchange for something else because it's money. Um, in other words, money being completely fungible, both sides of the demand are the demand for the money, the supplying of it and the, and the and demanding of it. So you have demand for this money, and the demand as, as unique, Bitcoin is unique in 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 like two major ways. One is, um, you know, in a single history, it has a fixed supply, um, but it also has um, a fixed transaction rate, and that's not true of anything that exists in the universe. Right? <laughs> Nothing else um, has a fixed has a has, has a competitive cost to hand it to somebody else that rises the more people are doing it around the world. Um, and so what that implies is that the, the more demand there is to use it, the more it costs to use it. So in other words, increasing demand decreases demand. Whereas in everything else that exists in the world, what people are familiar with, increasing demand increases supply. Okay, but in other words, um, 
if you if you think about the supply demand relation, you know, increasing demand increases supply to keeps price stable, but increasing demand can also decrease demand to keep price stable. They have the same effect, and so that's what that's what you have with with Bitcoin uh, its relation to fees, um, and it doesn't matter. I know I, th I think Monero is you know what um, is it's not what we call fixed supply, but it doesn't matter because um, as long as it's a market money. Um, the production of new coin doesn't change price either. It's not price inflationary. It's another thing people have a really hard time understanding. But um, the, the, the point is that as increasing demand decreases demand, you, you hit a limit, right? I, this money, for example, Bitcoin not being usable for a penny transaction if the fees you know, are a penny per transaction, right? It's, it's, it costs more to, you know, it has, if it's, it's a fees are even 10% of what a transaction is that that's, that's, um, you know, if I'm going to, you're going to borrow some, borrow some Bitcoin, run a business and then pay it back. Those two transactions, um, would be 20% of your, uh, of what you borrowed, which means that's two years worth of profit for a typical business, you know, 10% profit margin. So you've wiped out two years of the profit just to make the transactions, right? So if you're, if you're approaching that level, you're probably not viable as a money. Um, and so what happens? Well, people still need money. Okay. So that demand spills over into another place. That's the substitute. And I, I wrote this up in, you know, substitution principle. We've already got substitutes for Bitcoin um, um, or, you know, Bitcoin is a substitute for other monies, but, but, Presently, uh, fee levels aren't maybe high enough to make that happen. When they are, then the demand will exist, and presumably, um, that will cause the formation of a second, nearly identical chain, and security will build up in that chain. Fees will rise, security will rise along with it, and there'll be a reason to do a third. And if it drops, maybe the reason to do a third will disappear, and people will atomic swap away from that back into their other ones. So there is really no limit to the amount, to the extent that which that can happen. Um, and I, I find that interesting. I don't know. It's, you know, why, why it's already happening. It's not like, why wouldn't that happen? It already happens. Um, what, what do you think of Monero's? I know you haven't taken a close look at Monero, but, uh, uh, Monero's dynamic block size. So Monero has dynamic blocks that, you know, scale with more usage. So fees actually essentially stabilize or go down even when there's more demand? I don't, um, I, I don't really like it because, um, you know, it's, I think it's been pretty well shown that blockchains really aren't shardable. I think Peter, Do Peter Todd did a lot of work in this. I think he actually determined that he had proven that it wasn't possible, right? So if you're, if you're in a situation where uh, in order to validate any money, you, you have to accept an arbitrarily large amount of data. You're no longer in that Moore's law overcomes the linear growth of the chain scenario, right? And what I was describing with, you know, ver uh, variable number of chains supporting the entire economy is that each one of them is, is independent, right? Which means you don't have to have them all. You only have to have the ones you care about if you want to validate your money. Um, so ultimately it presents, it, pre it presents a scalability problem, which we've seen in, in monies that don't limit that size. Block size being arbitrary annoys people, you know, annoys me as, you know, as a, as a, as a programmer who likes to think of 
things being elegant, you know, and, and, and existing for certain reasons. But there's a, there's a good significant number of magic numbers in Bitcoin. Um, you know, 10 minutes. Um, so you, you don't think Moore's law could, could take, I mean, just well, Moore's something. law can't solve arbitrary growth. I mean, <laughs> you can't predict how much growth there will be once you don't have a limit. Right. Um, I, I, I don't know. I haven't you know, looked at specifics, but it's, if, if there is no, if there is no bound, um, well, no, there, there's penalty, there's penalties. If you try to, uh, you know, there's incentives there to not want to just put spam in the chain. If that's what you're referring to. No, that's not what I'm talking about. at all. I mean, just, okay. just I mean, I, I don't think the, the term spam to me is meaningless. It's, that's just a low fee transaction, lower than other fee transactions. And if people are accepting low fee transactions, then, you know, it just means there's not much demand. And so, um, well, I guess what I'm saying, there's penalties there where it doesn't economically make sense for you to try to just, st as a miner, stuff in more and more and more and more transactions to make the blocks larger and larger. You get penalized initially if you just try to make excessively large blocks. Uh, I mean, it's one of two things. Either it's an effective, it's effectively a, linear, a limit that creates uh, linear growth, um, or it's not, right? Yeah. It, it, and... and uh, if it is, then I don't know, a constant number seems fine to me. <laughs> I don't know why varying it would 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 be helpful. Um, uh, you know, price varies and price determines you now who, who gets who gets hurt. Uh, wouldn't it be helpful for just lo you know lowering the fees so you could do more transactions on chain? Well, yeah, you can make. You know, you could you could lower you, you could eliminate the block limit altogether and have lowest possible fees in exchange for, um, you know, the miner making the decision on when it's time to stop accepting transactions into a candidate block and actually mine on the block. Right? They have to make that decision at some point. But presumably, they're going to grab as many possible fees as they can, which means they're going to um, make the block as big as they possibly can. Right? Um, and um, that is technically fine with the, except when you consider the fact that um, you want this to be able to be done in private, secretly, because it's not allowed. And making it, um, I think this has already been shown, right? Some, some coins have removed such limits and exceeded the ability of anybody to actually run them. Or, or pretty much anybody to run them right. as predicted. So, um, you know, you, you can create some incentive model to keep that value small or yeah. you can just cap the value and there's your incentive model, right? Take the, take the highest value transactions. That's your incentive is to get the ones you can that, that fit into the time and then move to the next one. And if, and if by the way, if that if that is becoming too expensive, what I suggested is, any number of additional chains can fill that can fill that void, right? Can can accept lower fee transactions, and there, there is no limit to that. But those are effectively sharded between each other, right? There, there's there's no there's no connection between you know these say ten chains, where you know Bitcoin zero is spilling over into Bitcoin one is spilling over into Bitcoin two. Well, if I only care about Bitcoin two because I do you know coffee transactions and that's it, I don't you know I don't need to secure millions of dollars. I only have that one, and I can run it. 
if I'm only securing high value transactions, I also only need that one and I can, I can run that. If I can, I can mine that, I can decide I only want to mine that one. I mine the other one somewhere else. So the ability to keep these, these arbitrary amounts of data, I'm not suggesting there's any limit on the amount of data that can be put into blockchains. There isn't. I'm suggesting that the data, um, the way the design exists today is that you need all of the data to validate any transactions uh, and to make it possible for others to validate the chain. You, need to, you, can't, you can't even prune. So um, to make that feasible in small locations, keeping it small makes sense. And it will get smaller and smaller with Moore's Law. So you can certainly you know, say, well, we went from one meg to four meg in Bitcoin. And um, still linear, big, you know, big increase. But um, uh, you know, now people now people are wringing their hands about it um, because it's actually probably happening, right? So uh, I don't know what the thinking was. Is this just not going to happen? People are not going to use this space for cheap stuff because it's cheap space because it's bigger. But I, I try not to, you know. I try not to pretend there's any distinction between spam and financial transactions. Mm-hmm. They're all just lower fee transactions. Yeah, agreed. Um, and if you don't want miners to take lower fee transactions, just put a cap on the amount, right? They're, the fees will be as low as possible. Uh, to me, it sounds you know that's a simple solution. I you know I can I can I see people doing things that are more complicated, but I just don't see any any significant reason for making it any more complicated than that. It's a, you know, you could also have a, you could also do something that's more complicated with the uh, difficulty adjustment, right? It's fixed. It just, it's, it's targeting, you know, roughly 10 minutes. It's turning out these conversations. Why, why? It could vary it, right? We could make it more complicated or the subsidy. We could make it more complicated um, and try to get some benefit out of it. But um, from an economic standpoint, I really just don't, you know, I don't see why that's, material or significant. It's kind of the way I look at, you know, mining on CPUs or GPUs or ASICs. It's like from a, from, from, from a high level, uh, those aren't really the issue. You, you got to you gotta take a good look at Monero and the overall architecture. Um, no, the, things that, the, the things that you've mentioned about um, Monero aren't the things that I have thought would be more interesting. Like mm-hmm. the, the, um, the privacy, like, for example, Having a potentially unbounded, you know, block size is 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 a, to me an anti-privacy concern. Having um, having CPU mined coins is, you know, some maybe some marginal benefit. But I, as I explained before, I don't really think that's a, a that's the significant mining issue. But what I do what I do understand is that you know the linking of transactions, right? The privacy between inputs and outputs mm-hmm. um, that Monero has worked on. Um, it, as I mentioned, it's a significant issue in Bitcoin, and um, I would expect there's some advantages there that are that I would consider material advantages, right? Um, you know, yeah. The only only reason I'm talking to you because I, I know I know I know you you know you're you see that as a you know uh, an issue in Bitcoin, and I do think Monero is doing a good job of solving that. So I, I wanted to run some of these other aspects yeah. of Monero Bayou just to kind of get your opinion. Yeah, I, I think I mean to, to be honest with you, from a, from an engineering standpoint, like. If I was going to take and establish or, or a brand standpoint, right, establish some brand around private money, Monero, whatever, I, I would not have done like I wouldn't I wouldn't have made any material changes to the mining. 
I wouldn't have made any material changes to block sizing or to um, or to coin emission. Those because those things aren't they're just not privacy related, right? They may be trying to solve other problems, but they're overloading the central aspect of what I think of as Monero and its brand is at uh, delinking inputs and outputs. Right. Yeah, yeah. I would say no. Nah, I would say its brand is censorship resistant, fungible digital cash. It's yeah. pretty much and the that's, same and, and brand as Bitcoin, but does it? Right. Matter? Right. I, I think the idea. Right. It's the same principle as Bitcoin, but we're yeah. you know from the beginning, what I understood was Monero was focused initially on cryptographic solutions to the to the essentially um, money laundering you know problem. Right. How, how do we? How do we break the connections between inputs and outputs? And I, I still, based on stuff you're telling me, those other things we're talking about aren't, um, from what I can see, uh, benefiting you know, censorship resistance. They're really, they're really not material changes to the censorship mo model. I, I mean, if you can, you know, tainting will exist on any coin. You know, you trade with somebody; they know who you are. But the ability to delink that from the next transaction cryptographically, you know, I don't know, Mimble Wimble or something, right? You know, uh, zero, ca zero cash, zero coin. I don't know. I can't, can't, can't keep track of them. <laughs> All these, those things to me are fascinating. And they're like new ideas, new technologies that eventually are going to get somewhere. And I think Monero has done a lot of work in that area. That to me is the most interesting. Mm. Um, and... Um, but holistic, I mean, your, your, your book, you know, crypto economic, I mean, the value, what you see as being the value proposition of Bitcoin is a censorship resistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's, an, that's one of the two major aspects of censorship resistance that Bitcoin mm -hmm. doesn't, hasn't done a great job at, right? We have, mine, we have mining centralization and we've got uh, transaction linking, um, tainting. And um, they, they, they both need work. Um, they're, I mean, for somebody who knows what they're doing, you know, you can be pretty private in Bitcoin. I mean, the fact that we have we ha we have various crimes that occur and people get away with them and they disappear. And, you know, yeah, it does. It does work. If you do some ransomware. Right. These things do work to to the extent that you're able to um, be careful. And you look at like some of the FBI takedowns and you, when you really look under the cover and see what they did, you realize, ah, it was just some gumshoe work, right? Yeah, it, was, yeah, it, was, no, it wasn't like we were, we were linking transactions or anything. Yeah. Um, the guy had his password on a post-it note, you know, had his, his private keys on a post-it note next to his computer and we went in and got it. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I think all that work is good. And, and for me, I just, um, I want I want to see that continue to make its way into one or more coins into Bitcoin. You know, like the improved privacy on chain is important. There's there's just so much work going on in uh, layering, um, right? I, I, I don't have any I don't do any work in it. I really don't have any interest in it. It's not that I don't like it. It's, it's I just don't have any interest in it. To me, the base money is is what is what matters. And I and I and I do think that. Um, you know, the, the trade-offs that are made in layering are, are not small. They're, they're, they're material trade-offs. And as we've seen, um, you know, there's centralization issues, there's security issues that are real and people are starting to really uh, come to grips with. There are other solutions to those problems. And, you know, multi-chain solutions is, is uh, approaches already exists. It's one of the ones that uh, I find interesting.
So nobody, as far as I know, even works on that or even thinks about it. So I, I kind of look at that as, as where I put my effort on, on the uh, on base chain work and making it possible to, to um, um, move between them. So do, but, do you do you think I mean do you think Bitcoin is private enough today to you know to to resist being co-opted by by the state if people want to use it for those purposes right so I know it's just a tool people already use it for those purposes yeah I mean it's but, just I mean do you think as a technology is it ha- does it have enough privacy to but it's it's like asking me in like 1980 is the internet good enough to send email fuck yeah yeah. <laughs> if you're, you know, if you're a PhD and you know you have a have a lab with a computer center and you know you, you can, yeah, it's great. I, I worked at IBM in 1986 and they had internal email called Profs. I was like, yeah, email's great. What do you mean you don't use email, right? <laughs> well, it wasn't for another ten years that most people even knew what you know how to use email. So um, I well, I'm think, saying you know we're looking to use this as a tool to resist state control, right? And that's. Yeah. That's what a lot of people do right now. Right. It, keeps, it keeps keeping people alive around the world. And like, you know, Myanmar, for example, like how are they how are they funding their revolution? It's their Bitcoin. How do Venezuelans get, you know, get stuff? A lot of it's Bitcoin. Um, so it works. Uh, you know, in the West, it's largely a casino. Um, and I mean, we saw issues like in Canada with the trucker revolt, right? We saw like the exactly, right? You know, issues. People got their banking shut down. And they saw, oh, shit. You know, we can see there's a reason for Bitcoin. But is it big enough yet? No, but then the Bitcoin became an issue, right? With them blacklisting addresses. and That's, be- <laughs> That's because they were taking it through a central website, right? People were, people were posting Bitcoin payments through some website to, to, to their GoFundMe. And not the GoFundMe, the one that came after. Yeah, um... So the white market infrastructure doesn't work when you need the Bitcoin. That, that's kind of the point, right? You need to build up infrastructure that works outside the white market. Because when push comes to shove, like I, I watched that whole thing happen, right? I threw a few bucks at the truckers and I was like, okay, we'll see what happens now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, when that happens, it just, it just makes it really obvious that um, – your white market solutions aren't solutions. Um, so Bitcoin, you know, it's not, it doesn't solve the problems that we're talking about at the level of banks, you know, like banking's not gonna go away. And lending shouldn't go away, right? That's fucking stupid. But, um, you know, people talking about eliminating fractional reserve and interest and. Uh, the only kind of lending is fractional reserve lending. There's no other lending. You lend a fraction of what you have. <laughs> so, um, and so what banks do, they just do it as, you know, they're doing it as your proxy. Um, they're taking what you have and they're lending a fraction of it. So, uh, like, the, these things, if people are in Bitcoin for those reasons, they're just severely misguided. You're not going to replace the white market banking system. You don't want to replace, you know, things like lending. And, um, spending so much time and energy building on those systems, those white market systems or those systems designed, you know, to give people risk-free rate of return, you know, um, just severely misguided waste of capital. Um, that was one of the reasons why I, I started writing the topics and or my wiki. And then I ended up writing the book and I was like, I wanted to like 
I just so much wasted capital going after these ideas and I got sick of explaining them over and over and over and over again. So I just wrote these little wiki, you know, topics in my software repo and just post them to people. And that became the book because other people were making a book out of it. I finally decided I should do it. But, um, there's like, I look at the like 98% of what goes on in Bitcoin and it's just wasted. And um, since I can't control what other people do, I just decided to do it myself. Right? I got I got time, I got ability, and uh, you know I have interest. I can just sit here for you know as long as my body will let me and just write code for Bitcoin and write you know write about theory because who's going to stop me? But um, it would be nice if um, you know there was some larger part of the community that was not just focused on. Um, Chilling their shit coins um, or their Bitcoin, right? For price and um, trying to, you know, rally people by arguing we're going to tear down the system, which I don't see. You know, I, I I know the code pretty well, and I don't know any 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 line of code that is going to resist the white market, you know, or tear down any systems or stop lending. It's not going to happen. Um, it's coming from the users. What's that? That that has to come from, come from the users, right? It's just a tool. It's the people. It, it's a, it's a tool, and you know most people vote for their you know the state. <laughs> so so it's a tool for the other people to to opt out, and and you know if, they, if things get worse, I mean say like Venezuela, more people decide to opt out, um, and it becomes more popular and more useful. But um, you know we have to build things in a way that are usable when they're not allowed, not just pretend that it's going to be popular enough so they can't stop it. It's ridiculous. It's that, I mean, if they don't want to stop it, that's fine. But the, the point of Bitcoin is is doing it when it's not allowed. Do you, um, do you think the number go up mentality and, you know, the, uh, in, in, the incentives that it's driving will could essentially defang Monero? So as, as it gets, the design decisions are more towards number go up than uh, building a tool that's good for resisting state well, control. And it's, you know, uh, a feedback loop and it becomes stronger and, you know, it be- becomes larger and larger, uh, gains tremendous network effect as this there's a certain you know, number go up tool, which, you know, the government ends up not mining, you know, really caring about because they could extract the taxes as they need from it because it's a perfectly traceable yeah yeah i mean pay your your mama goes up and then you pay your capital gains which means you really didn't avoid the inflation um because your your number went up your 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 value didn't go up um so yeah i I think of that like in a a dollar crash scenario right what's your capital gains going to (laughs) be bitcoin right (laughs) and if you're in the white market you're paying tax on that so they're still capturing you know significant portion of your of your uh, of the inflation through that, you just have to say no, nope, not paying my taxes. Okay, well now you're black market. Um, so I, I think there are a number of people that measure like the success of these things based on the number. You know whether the number go up more. You know my coin versus your coin, and um, I uh, it, it is a measure of usage to some extent, but I think it's it's also just measure it's measure of speculation. And what are they speculating on, especially on usage, right? Well, um, say that, you know, 
Fed step step up one day in the U.S. and in Europe, and they say, "Well, this stuff's just illegal. It's money laundering." Well, this number keep going up because you know now we're we're, we're able to resist that. No, that's probably going to not help. Um, if you get a Fed coin alternative, you know, a, a soft fork, a censorship soft fork, which um, you know comes from the Feds, that might make the number go up even more. Exactly. Right. 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 That's, that, that's, that's what I'm saying. And then that becomes the you know the popular Bitcoin. Right. You know, well, it's not providing any value whatsoever. Um, so uh, I, I just try not to focus on those things. Right. If, if I when I hear stories about People in Myanmar, you know, buying supplies while they're living out in the jungles, um, fighting their, you know, severely oppressive government, um, and maybe you know, throwing out some three D printed guns. Um, I, I think, oh, you know, technology is, is working for individuals, um, and that's good to see. Um, so, I mean, everybody. Everybody likes to see the number go up in a, in a, in a sense because it, it drives interest. It drives, I mean, it, it drove the story, which got me interested in, right? I was ignoring the stuff because I saw DigiCash come and go. I saw it fail, and I, I, I couldn't imagine the solution to it. Um, and and when I heard about Bitcoin, there had been others, and I was just saying, yeah, okay, okay, okay. You know, and then when I finally sat down and read it, I understood. But why did I read it? Because, it, you know, Silk Road made the press, and... Um, um, Andy Greenberg, who I actually ran into later and had a nice chat with him, but he's the one responsible for getting me into Bitcoin with his Silk Road article in Forbes. And I don't know if you know him, but he, he writes for Wired now. Yeah. I read his book and yeah, I, I met him at Cody Wilson's house. Um, oh, wow. Also where I met Peter Todd for the first time. Same meeting. <laughs> I met Cody, Peter, Andy Greenberg, Patrick Straitman. Amir was there. He had, he had invited me down and um you know, Cody and I um, have remained friends since, and I got to I get to sit on a radio show. I had already read Andy's book, and I sat there with him and, and talked about it at the bookstore in Austin. Um, yeah, it was all, all great fun. But you know, that all happened because number went up, and and I uh, caused this article to get written, and I read it, and that got me involved. But I was involved because I was excited about I, you know, I read the I went and read the white paper, and I got excited about. Um, what was possible all of a sudden, um, despite what I had learned about DigiCash in the past. You know, I, I knew, you know, like, I knew Digi like the problem with DigiCash was that Dave, it was all centralized around David Chome, right? He, it was his thing, and um, and he could never uh, really escape that, and therefore it never worked. So to me, that was exciting. It wasn't that? Oh, the numbers going up. Numbers going up. I should get. I should get into this Bitcoin thing. I was like, no, I, you know, wow, we've got we've got um, stateless electronic money, first time ever. That's that's really cool to me. That I can see that as you know, that's an internet style, uh, you know, size change, and I want to be part of that. One hundred percent. Can't couldn't agree more, man. That, that's how I ended up at, at Monero. I was a, you know, I was a Bitcoin maxi and then I, I moved, made my way there because I just thought it was kind of living up to those design goals. Uh, yeah, I, I could see like, a lot of those people, you know, like yourselves um, who've, who've done that, you know, over a long, long period of time, I think this, it all evolves into something else. Um, like, you know, look again, look back at the internet. I mean, there were, there were, there were conflicts over 
different protocol issues and different approaches to things that went on for a long. Now they're just kind of like completely forgotten. They're not important. You know, is it, um, I remember like local area networking, what was going to be the, what was going to be the dominant protocol? It was going to be Banyan Vines or, or Netware or, you know, <laughs> NetBio, you know, okay. It all became TCP. Great. Um, but it changed. And, um, you know, we have IPv6, and, uh, but it was just less, less annoying though. People weren't constantly tweeting about it. They didn't have, they didn't well, have money to make it. That they weren't pumping their bags. If it was one protocol or the other, right. So it's, it's, it's well, they, they, these systems didn't exist back then. Right. No, before, no. before there was, how no. would you, how would you even know these people existed? Of course. You'd have to like subscribe to nerd magazine and, and, you know, <laughs> read about it. So, um, I mean the paper one for those of you at home who are too young to know what I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a different world. And so we're, we're in this world where we're doing some new technology stuff. And I, 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 I don't, there's some, there's some Bitcoin people who are just severely wound up about anybody doing any other kind of coin. And like, I, I don't care. I never, I never have cared, um, what people want to do with their own property in their own time. And, um, you know, scamming, uh, you know, to steal stuff from people. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not okay with that. But there's a lot of legitimate efforts to try to solve problems and do things in different ways. I mean, some people look at what I'm doing, like, you know, writing another node implementation in Bitcoin is scammy. Like, you know, I'm like, well, okay, that's, that's fine. You can feel whatever you want. And, and in the old days, you wouldn't have to listen to these people 24-7, right, like right. you do now. Um, so that's just the world we live in. But sometimes you just turn it off and just keep working. And, um, you know, I've seen so much of it already in Bitcoin come and go. I mean, Gavin came and went. <laughs> Mike came and went. I, I remember having one of my first articles that I, my topics I wrote was a discussion based on a discussion I had with Mike, who's who had de- Mike Hearn, who, Mike who Hearn. had decided that the, Hearn, the way yes. to secure Bitcoin is to build one big server farm and you know do all the mining there, um, because governments can't stop popular things. And if we make the blocks huge and we mine it all together, you know it'll be so popular we won't be able to stop it. And I wrote a topic in my book about this. I'm like, you know, so that was actually you know there was a with a bunch of controversy and I'm like, these things just go away over time. So, uh, I try not to spend too much time, um, on those, on those type of things. Like when, when protocol changes, like P2P protocol changes are proposed or soft forks are proposed, things like, I, 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 I tend to argue these things, um, a little bit here and there. Um, but for the most part, I don't really care that much it's, you know, so there's a lot of people working on these things. They want to, they want to do these things. Great. Let's, let's, let's try it out. Um, what I do argue is when there's, when there's people promoting things that I know not to be true. Um, like for example, for example, softworks are backward compatible. I, that's just an engineering falsehood. Right? Softworks are not compatible, just like hard forks are not compatible. The different, the difference is, with mining uh, majority hash power, you can force people to follow them, right? You don't need to get 100% on board. You only need to get 50% of the mining hash power on board. Then they're then they're compatible. Um, so this whole user-activated software thing, which actually lied to people about, you know, and continues to about how it's compatible, right? It's a software. It's fine. We'll just implement, we'll just activate it whenever we want. I was shocked at how many people actually believe that. I, I, I thought it was just something people kind of took as a PR line, but didn't really believe it. But there were actually quite a significant number of people who believed that some small fraction of the economy or some fraction of the economy or even a majority of the economy could just deploy a soft fork. And because it's backward compatible, there won't be a chain split. 
And I saw people who should know better promoting that idea. And that's when I spoke up, right? Because to me, that's fraudulent. And um, that's going to cause people to, uh, it's going to cause unexpected results, monetary loss, things like that. Um, and why I look at it is that, that in that example, that's a power struggle between, between, um, between exchanges and miners. And why would I pick one over the other? <laughs> um, and, um, you know, you have a choice in these things. If you want to mine, you can mine and you know, you can be, you can get, you can get your hash power in there and vote. And I said that from the very beginning, like anyway, so, so there, there's those kind of things that I get involved in because it, or economic arguments that don't make any sense. Um, like I, I mentioned a few already, but what, for mo- like, I didn't like the, the merits of the taproot implementation or Segwit. I didn't say anything. I, I, I mean, I, I implemented the whole thing. I looked at it. There's some things I don't like about it. I wish I would have, like, implemented it early enough to make a comment about, like, hey, I don't like the serialization. You, you could have done it better. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it's, it's, it's fine. And if it's not fine, like, say, BIP37, whatever, the, you know, it gets weeded out over time. So I, I kind of tag along on Bitcoin because it's just the big one, right? And I know it best because that's where I started. Um, and I also try to generalize the implementation that we have enough that I can adopt things very easily. Protocol, protocol, P2P protocol differences, consensus rule differences, um, which I mentioned Litecoin, um, really just a few lines of code, different, uh, two, two lines, right? One swapped out the hashing algorithm, which we already had in our code base, um, because of, because of some wallet stuff script and, um, changing a constant. And I think that was, that, oh, no, it changed to the, uh, passed to the time warp bug. That was it. And so, uh, you know, through config, you can run the same binary, run two different coins. So if I can, if I can, if I can, you know, I focus on Bitcoin, I make sure that that's always working, but say I could implement Monero without, you know, significant changes, you know, sure, I'd do it. I just don't have time right now. Um, but I design with that in mind. Um, because I look at, you know, this scenario I talked about where you have, you know, very, very, some various number of chains that are all sitting behind some wallet and you using the ones that you want and swapping between them. If I can, if I can do that in one implementation and, and run any number of chains from that one implementation, now I've got, I've done some good engineering work right now, running more than one chain, even if it's like, you know, Bitcoin and testnet, right? It, uh, it's, um, or Litecoin, right? Those are recompiles. Those are separate binaries. Those are that's that's a lot of overhead and um, uh, stuff to maintain, both in developing and running. So try to you know just try to engineer to a future where um, we can solve some of these problems. That I anticipate. Very good, man. Um, do you do you have a minute to jump into the the chat, the spaces, to see if anybody wants to throw you a question? Um, yeah, sure. I, I could I could use a uh, two minute bathroom break before we, uh, we jump into something new, though. Okay. Uh, Thank you so much, man. It would it would be amazing to have you come down to Monerotopia if that's at all possible. Monerotopia, where is that? It's in New York. We're doing it in no, we're doing it in Mexico City um, in in May. Mexico City, May. Well, spent a lot of time in Mexico City. Amir will pro- probably be there. Uh, other people from the Dark Five uh, project are going to be down there. <laughs> uh, we're trying to get Peter Todd down there. 
It's, uh, it's not out of the question. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Maybe I could convince you. Yeah, off I, I, I like Mexico City. Awesome. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right. So, so what should I do with the well, thing? It's uh, as simple as I think you're already logged in there. So I'm just going to uh, add you as a co-host. Invite the co-host. So I'm sending you the invite right now. And then you can just accept it. And uh, we'll be done over here. I'll just close it out over here. All right, guys, as we're waiting for Eric to come back, who wants – oh, Aeon's requesting. Let's see. Anybody else want to come up, just request to be a speaker. Aeon, what's going on, man? Not much. You know, I've always got something to say. I was just seeing if anyone else is going to come up first. <laughs> I, I always love hearing your takes, man. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'm curious to see this little interaction between you and Eric. This is going to be fun. Any, anybody else want to uh, jump up? Just come up now. And uh, we'll kind of line people up so Eric can answer a few questions. Hey, what was your what was kind of your overall take there from from the conversation? Were you listening in? Yeah, listen. I mean, Eric's pretty much. I learned half of what I know from him, so it's not not too much new. But his his work really uh, changed my uh, perspective on looking at these networks and how you know thinking adversarially and threat models and all that. So, Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how we could get him to take a closer look at, at Monero, you know? Indigo, what's going on, man? Hey, hey, Douglas. Thank you for having me up. I am sorry. I seem to be coming into these spaces after the, the interview, and I don't know what you guys were talking about. <laughs> I don't know what was said in there, but from the, from the title, um, I don't know what you guys touched on. I'm sorry. I, I, but uh, I was wondering if Eric would be interested if he's done any research on Mimblewimble and what that could potentially mean for Bitcoin, at least not perfect privacy, but some fungibility, as well as, um, I don't know if you guys touched on ordinals and uh, how that might actually showcase how or highlight the fact that Bitcoin has been non-fungible. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, we... Me up. Yeah, no problem, man. Yeah, we, we did touch on ordinals a bit, um, but Eric, you want to you want to jump in and answer the Mimblewimble question? Do you have any familiarity with the Mimblewimble and whether or not that might be something that Bitcoin looks to implement? Uh, hi, yeah, I, I just caught the tail end of that. Um, I, I've done no work, not looked at looked at nothing closely. I I think I. My exposure to Mimblewimble was um, when uh, Polstra uh, presented it, uh, presented on it, and um, at bre- uh, breaking, no, sorry, at uh, scaling Bitcoin in Milan uh, a long time ago, and you know, sounded very exciting, um, but um, I don't know <laughs> if we could if we could have uh, you know uh, the effects of completely delinked transactions and provability sounds great. Um, I, you know, hopefully the smart guys that work on that kind of stuff, keep us moving in that direction. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I can't really answer the question. I don't know the specifics about where things are these days. The only thing I'll say about it is it's been launched on Litecoin for a number of months now. Uh, and I think that there's about $3 million worth of Litecoin on there. Um, it's only on core no mobile wallet, but um, it's not perfect privacy. I like, I guess, Monero, but 
it does add um, confidential transactions. I don't know if you, yeah, I'm sure you do, but it kind of coin joins the all the coins. It also does add some scalability, but anyways, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. And then his uh, second comment was about ordinals of regards to uh, affecting Bitcoin's fungibility. I don't know if you want to comment that on that again, or you kind of said your piece there already. Yeah. Um, to me, fungibility is really not the, the issue. It's just, you know, block space is cheap and people are going to fill it. And uh, there's really no way you're going to ever distinguish between legitimate and non-legitimate use, whether or not worth trying. Um, it seems like the um, Taproot folks didn't anticipate this, which obviously looks like an oversight. But in the end, um, you know, the decision was made to forex the block size and discount the, the witness data. And um, this should be expected from that, right? Um, and I think that's been the response of a lot of long-term core developers. I mean, some response has kind of been split between, you know, it shouldn't happen. We've got to find a way to stop this to, this is going to happen. This is the consequences of increasing the block size. Um, so I, 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 to me, that's not something to really have a strong opinion on. And the, the lack of privacy, as I mentioned before, um, in Bitcoin is, is the root cause, not, not, you know, people putting some, pictures on the chain or doing whatever they want with it, right? If you can't, if you can't delink you know, inputs and outputs and, and you have, if it's easy to taint and it's a problem, no matter what you put in the transactions. All right. Uh, Aeon, you want to throw out your question? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Eric, I just want to say thanks for the work you do because it, changed my perspective a lot on these systems and gave me a really lucid view of how they work and just the basic understandings of these systems and what, you know, they're capable of and what they're attempting to do. So thanks for your work because I know you work hard on it and you're out there trying to speak some rationality into the into the void, but well, thanks for the <laughs> feedback. people that appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the feedback. And, and, uh, and I, I just asked, like, uh, you said it's changed your perspective on those things in, in what way? Just in how I look at these networks and especially between white market and black market, like those concepts fundamentally, like there was one time you were saying, you know, Bitcoin is perfectly fungible in the black market. You know, the problem is with white market and technically, nothing's really fungible in the white market because the state or the, you know, permission authority could just make whatever rule they want and say, you can't use it unless you, right, right. you know, identify this entire string of your history and put, yeah, the white, you know, whatever. The so. white market, you know, white market lack of fungibility, um, you know, affects black market too, because as I mentioned, you know, the talk, um, one of the reasons to, you know, have say, you know, accumulate money, earning savings in, in black markets, you know, to use it in the white market. So you have this transition um, that goes both both yeah. ways and it necessarily so, and it's pretty significant. And um, that's really, you know, it's that, you know, you can look at money laundering in a number of ways. One is it's just privacy and or two is it's, it's transitioning between black market and white market use of your money. Right. Um, but if you, if you're being infected in the white market, um, lack of fungibility that will that will affect 
how people see their money in the black market too, unless they can make that transition transparently. Um, and that's again, why we talk about, you know, non, you know, delinking of transactions. Um, yeah. The other aspect was about 51% of tax and just, you know, the center, the state being the censor and in regards to that and depressure, I mean, in that scenario, especially with Bitcoin, because miners, white market miners will still be able to make fees on transactions where people choose to, you know, abide by whatever the state is requesting. And so the fee pressure with the black market transactions and the battle between black market miners and white market miners, have you ever thought of, like, is there, because the only people that are going to be able to put, put fee pressure on the, or I should say incentive to the black market miners are transactions that are blacklisted. And so not everyone's going to have a blacklisted transaction. So the people that don't kind of just sit around and hope that the blacklisted transactions bump their fees enough to incentivize the black market miners. And from what I've thought of, there's no way to like pull a fee pressure unless you go out of your way to get your UTXOs tainted before any kind of 51% stack happens. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, yeah, touching on some good observations, it's, uh, you know, I, I come out with the, I put down the theory, right, that if, any, if anything's going to pay for people to mine illegally, um, and mining is the only way we're going to, you know, mine, without create, just creating a new coin, giving up and starting over again, uh, mining is the way you overcome, my, you know, majority hash power attack, and um, mining is paid for by fees unless it's just charity and you know folks so really there's only it's a very simple idea that um getting the transactions confirmed has to be valuable enough for people to pay for it or they won't and that and that value is presumably because they're you know they're, they're they're they want their black market transaction confirmed or they want it confirmed for whatever reason and they're going to pay extra for it uh versus a sensor you know a, a, a um, an uncensored transaction, approved transaction. And so the, you know, the point you're raising is, well, well how does that actually happen? Right? <laughs> like, how do, how do a group of people who have transactions, they want, or how do more people participate? Cause if I got a bunch of UTXOs and they're, none of them are blacklisted, I can't get them blacklisted really you raise your fee. because <laughs> yeah, but if, I mean, if they're willing to mine it and it's a white market transaction, then I'm not adding to the incentive to overtake well, them. What you asked was how do so I, I have to have you asked how do I participate? And by participate it means I, I think what you're saying is how do I pay more money to these black market miners? And that's very simple. You, you, exactly. you, just, you just put your fee above um well, sorry. You wanna you wanna have a trend I get what you're saying, you wanna have a transaction that the white market miners aren't going to capture your fee. It's only going to be available to the black market miners. Yeah. Oh, you, exactly. You do something that you, makes your transaction uh, black market, I guess. That's a good question. Um, yeah, but I mean, you'd have to do it beforehand because, I mean, well, that really is irrelevant. But yeah, you'd have to do something that intentionally taint them. Or, yeah, you'd, you know, do, do, do something that's. Because the more people that can participate in that fee pressure, the better chance it is to push out the sensor. And, Right, but ultimately, what you're saying is, you want to donate to the cause. Yeah. And I don't put a lot of um, stock in charitable solutions. 
Um, I think really there has to be there has to be um, real economic need for something to really be sustainable economically. Uh, I mean, sustainable period, right? So if if people are like, well, you know, we'd like we'd like to preserve this black market money, even though we don't really need it. Well, probably not going to survive um, just on charity. Um, no, no, the the state, you know, is mining at a loss if those fees are rising. And it's paying for that with taxes. And taxes aren't charity. It just extracts them from people, right? So, um, it, you know, it could be that people don't see it as charity, right? They're, they're fighting the man. But um, I think if, if Bitcoin is going to survive, it's going to have to do so on its, on its economic value to people. Um, you know, not, not, yeah, so not can, I, can I kind of interrupt and kind of interject there? That's quite an interesting statement, Eric. Sure. Like if, if Bitcoin's going to survive, it's kind of. Do you think there are slight? Do you think there are certain rules behind Bitcoin? I think like deterministic rules that kind of will make it survive. Nothing guarantees Bitcoin will continue to. You know, I mean, by surviving, what do we mean? You know, somebody's using it, right? But what we're talking about is being making it usable when it's not allowed uh, for people. You know, so there's two approaches. One is the state censors directly the use of the, you know, the acceptance of the money. So white market, you know, every white market business, every taxpaying business in the country decides they can no longer accept it. Um, and then you've got the other approach, which is, well, that's not good. And that, that, that would presumably come first, right? And that's not good enough. So we need to 51% attack it so that nobody else can use it either. Um, and um, so by survival, we mean, you know, in the face of those things, do people still have the ability to use it in the black market? Well, in the face of a, of a you know, kind of merchant prohibition, yeah, of course they would. They, you know, the transactions are still getting confirmed. Uh, in the face of a 51% attack, that may not be the case, right? You may not get any transaction confirmed that doesn't, you know, that doesn't provide, you don't provide ID for at a bank somewhere. So um, the question is, how do, how do you overcome that? And that's what I mean by survival, right? If, 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 it, if it's not surviving because nobody cares, that's a different problem, right? It's nobody using it. But, but if, it's, if it's not surviving because uh, the state is 51% attacking it, people can't really use it for anything but approved transactions, which means there's no value proposition. And by the way, the state can really compel, can effectively compel inflation at the same time, even without hard forking. They can just charge you extra fees. <laughs> and so it becomes a demurrage money. Um, and uh, and effectively nullifies the the anti signage benefit too. So with a with a with a fifty one percent attack, um, it's not really surviving. It's not providing the value proposition. That's what I mean. And how do you, how do you prevent that? Well, um, somebody's got to pay for it. And presumably, if nobody can tra nobody can tra transact a certain number of these transactions for some period of time, the value of them getting confirmed is going to increase and increase and increase and somehow those people and this is what i was saying it's a good question how do how do people kind of make that happen one approach is just to re, you know submit replacement transactions 
child pays for parent transactions, right? Keep increasing their fees on transactions. And those fees are just sitting out there, just waiting for somebody to take them. Um, and that rising pool of fee potential is sit, it's just sitting there all, you know, it just, it just grows and grows and grows and grows presumably until somebody comes along and says, I'm going to take that chance. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put together a shit ton of hash power and grab all that money. Um, but that has to be more than the state is willing to lose, uh, in tax money. Do, do you, um, that's kind of, you said you've touched on quite a few interesting points there and, um, so, kind of generally speaking, um, let me ask let, let me ask you kind of like a broad question. Kind of, do you think there's a lot of game theory going on with Bitcoin in terms of what you just said? In terms of, um, to my, my my personal perspective is Bitcoin is a it's the ultimate kind of culmination or manifestation of a, a non-zero some two-person game. Um, and, and what you kind of just touched on there is kind of saying that people don't really trust each other or but we have this mechanism now where as far as I can tell the, the values behind Bitcoin or the rules behind Bitcoin they're not arbitrary um, the kind of the, the pseudonymity behind it or the kind of anonymity or pseudonymity however you want to kind of like dramatically define it it, it provides for a kind of like symmetry where there's a quality and bargaining skill, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's equal, but what it, it does potentially provide is a mechanism where people, everyone could be better off. Or if you take the game as a whole, um, uh, there's like, there's, there's welfare. So I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of followed you on Twitter a little bit, Eric, mm -hmm. and um, I, I think we might've had like a few kind of spats over, over time, but, um, I don't know what, what I've just said there, whether that kind of resonates with you at all or whether you've got any thoughts on that. Um, well, uh, you know, touching on the idea of game theory and rules and everything, um, I, I'm not a big fan of the game theory uh, interpretation of Bitcoin, um, be, mainly because um, well, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen a game theoretic model um, that, that applies to Bitcoin. I mean, this is, this is a formal mathematics, right? It's not, it's not just like ad hoc ideas. Um, so uh, I, I made an attempt to apply the prisoner's dilemma type model to Bitcoin because people were talking about it a lot. And I, I couldn't, I, there, there's certain criteria that the, that the model has to, um, that have to exist for that particular um, game to apply. And that's true of all kind of games and game theory that, you know, they, these are, these are not, useful unless they apply, not usable unless they apply and they have to apply. So I haven't seen that yet. I hear people talking about it a lot. Um, I've challenged people to produce a valid game theoretic model. Um, so, you know, games are different than economy, right? Econ like the, the economy of the, the, the world of people trading with each other and using money, uh, you know, as a, as a medium of exchange uh, is not a game in the sense of game theory. Games are very closely controlled. Um, you know, who has access to what information, um, what are their motivations, yeah. how many players are there, what are the rules? And you, you mentioned rules a number of times. And, and the, rules, the yeah. rules of economy is everybody does whatever they want, right? And what, and what yeah. do they want? Who knows what they want? 
right? We we don't know what they want, and 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 it's not like we. With the prisoner's dilemma, we can presume, you know, that they don't want the punishment and they do want the reward. That's why those terms are given to those to those rules, right? Um, we make yeah. it up. Uh, so under those assumptions, we can then draw these conclusions. Um, in economics, right, we we don't know why somebody values something. We, we, we assume people value time. That's time preference. That's an assumption. That's an axiom. Um, we, we assume yeah. people value more over less of the same thing, right? And we assume the more they have of that same fungible thing, the less they value each additional unit, right? Th these are these are kind of um, the inherent assumptions of economics, but value is subjective. We don't know. And um, so really trying to place any formal type of rule system on top of that, um, like it, it's, um, it's difficult. Uh, to say the least, I've tried it. And, um, so yeah. what, the way I look at it is it's a competitive market, right? There, there's there's people that are trading and, you know, I want to sell my thing for the, for the most I can get for it. And the other person wants to buy it for the least they can get for it. And that's always the case in all, in all trades, we assume. <laughs> because of the assumption in economics, people want more than less. Um, and when it comes to threats against Bitcoin, um, you know, we talk about the state and their ability to mine 51% attack, that kind of thing. We, we assume the state has, as a primary interest, its goal of preserving uh, its tax power through signage um, and, yeah. and through transparency. And the reason we make, the reason I make that assumption is because that's the value proposition I ascribe to Bitcoin. It's the opposite, right? So Bitcoin wants to allow people to pay less tax, right? Less in signage and less in uh, transaction taxes because it hides the transactions, right? So privacy of transacting and um, soundness of the money, right? In other words, it's a market-produced money, not a, not a monopoly-produced money, provides those advantages. And of course, because that's what Bitcoin is trying to um, give to people, it's what the state wants to prevent. That's the assumption we operate under. And, and okay, well, the state wants to prevent these things and it has the, to, pr to protect its own money, it can use tax. What's the limit on its ability to tax? Well, the limit on its ability to tax is, you know, rebellion ultimately, like when people finally break out the pitchforks um, in defense of Bitcoin, right? Uh, like people, well, in defense of not paying the tax anymore, but people being taxed to the hill to subsidize a mining hash power attack against Bitcoin, um, pres presumably there is a limit, but that might be very, very high. Now, what kind of game theory model is going to tell me where that is and when that stops? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's kind of, yeah. Yeah, what, what, what you're saying is kind of, it's interesting and, um, <clears throat> So first, first of all, you, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> you, you kind of mentioned the prisoner dilemma game theory idea earlier. So Satoshi didn't directly, I don't think, as far as I'm aware, he didn't directly kind of talk about prisoner dilemma game theory, but he did talk, he did say that the Bitcoin proof of work solves um, <clears throat> the Byzantine generals problem, which as far as I can make out, prisoner dilemma games and and the Byzantine generals problem are the same thing in terms of if you're in a kind of uh, cooperative 
sorry, if you're in a if you're in a non cooperative game or a competitive game with someone, as in you're competing with someone, and it's kind of zero sum, I'm going to win, you're going to lose, then the one thing that you rely on in, in playing such a game is true information. As in, you want to know what the other person knows kind of thing. So that's kind of touches on Prisoner Dilemma games. And as far as I can make out, that's the same thing as the Byzantine General problem. In terms of you, like a Byzantine General will want to know what the other kind of general on the other side of the argument, well, there's... Um, what information that they have access to. But there's some... Being... That's, kind of, that's, that's kind of the idea behind the blockchain as far as I can make out. And the, and the blockchain is based on... A series of assumptions. That's my that's my opinion of it. And that's my outlook of it. Um, I don't know what you think to that. Well, I mean, there there are some game theoretic models that assume um, perfect knowledge, and there's others that assume no knowledge. Right? Like all the players know what every other yeah. all the information that every player has, and all of them don't. And I I actually looked at both approaches when I when I analyzed Prisoner's Dilemma as a potential. But 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 you know the, these these models are also applied in different scenarios. Like what I was looking at was the argument that states must all eventually adopt Bitcoin, you know, or they, or they will, or they will have some failure, right? It's in other words, it's game theoretically provable that they will all, you know, all states will eventually adopt Bitcoin. Um, I, I couldn't make any model uh, along those lines uh, valid in terms of game theory. They're open-ended. Um, whether it was full information or, you know, no information uh, about what each other has. So um, yeah. on the other hand, you know, the, the, the relationship between Byzantine generals, um, you know, kind of problem and the prisoner's dilemma, I've never heard that. It, you know, there may be some relationship, but um, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think of the Byzantine generals problem in terms of game theory. Um, I, it's a problem. How do we, how do we, how do we um, make this conclusion with um, um, untrustworthy information, right? Across all these disparate people in different locations, how do we how do we come to a conclusion? Yeah. We can't trust the messenger. Um, and um, so that's, that's uh, you know the solution to that. Yeah, that's is, quite interesting. Just, we just make them do a bunch of work, and the the answer is you know uh, probabilistic. That's it. We all agree. We all agree to accept as knowledge the most work that we see. Um, so I don't yeah, know what's a game I mean, theory. How we yeah. can apply game theory to that? Um, well, I mean, what you just said there. I mean, Bitcoin is a probability-based system. You know. Um, yeah, we get a. Yeah, you're saying quite a few interesting. You're saying quite a few interesting things there that I don't necessarily disagree with. But on the other hand. Personally, I think Bitcoin is based in game. Th- I think personally, I think Bitcoin was the work of a game theorist. Well, yeah, I've heard that and, theory um, many times, but um, I have yet to ever see a game theoretic model applied to Bitcoin. So, if, if that's your theory, I would either find one or, or write one up, publish it, um, you know, and submit it to like a, a game. It would be probably a valuable contribution, you know, submit it to a journal of mathematics um, that specializes in game theory. And have people actually understand that stuff better than I do. Review it, um, uh, but I nobody's done that as far as I know. And despite all the talk that people have about it, um, and you know, there's there's a lot of people that you know think Nash invented Bitcoin because of this connection, which I have yet to see. Yeah. Um, I read everything that Nash wrote about Bitcoin or you know things related to Bitcoin, and it's all very very 
high level. Um, and you, you've you've read his you've you've read his ideal money papers and yeah, yeah. That, ideas on coalition formations. Yeah. There's not that much that pertains to to money. Um, and you know, um, to me, it's all very kind of I've, I've said before, kind of um, simple and naive. It it it, it assumes um, the ideal money thing just assumes that uh, states will be compelled to act in a certain way um, against their own interest um, because of the power of a of a um, of a of a, of a useful measure. Um, and, and it's circular in its argument, right? The idea that uh, state monies will peg themselves to an ideal money, a gold-like money, right? Like Bitcoin, um, presu yeah. presumes that the money they're pegging it to is the money that people are using. Because how could you peg it to money people aren't using? It would be useless, <laughs> right, to peg it to it. But it also presumes that people are using the state monies, not the other money. So how, the hell, how, how is that not circular, right? It doesn't make any sense to me. Either everybody's using the Bitcoin, yeah, and, that's yeah. what you, and that's what you actually use, and therefore your state monies are pointless. Or everybody's using the state monies, and Bitcoin is useless as a peg. It can't be both. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. I got a quick question. Even if, even if it was proven, like, okay, Bitcoin's a game theoretical system, what benefit would that serve to, like, you know, the threat models and the adversarial aspects to the system. Like, well, if, if, in my, if you could prove it was, yeah, you provide a game theory, like, like, you could prove something. You could actually prove something. But that's not what people mean when they say game theoretic in Bitcoin. It's more of a hand wavy idea that there's competition going on, which, which is not, doesn't allow you to prove anything. Yeah, th I think, okay, so that's a good question. Um, sorry, I, this, my screen's kind of jumping around. So is it Aon or just hand? Ask that question about yeah about so what that game. benefit it would serve like yeah so so from a Nash perspective Nash's kind of idea is or with behind idle money it was more of a microeconomic kind of idea than a macroeconomic idea so what he was essentially saying is is if if you can mitigate the uh, pernicious effects of inflation in a monetary system then you can consider contracts in terms of how that contract is considered. And that, that was kind of the idea. And um, so kind of so getting back to the game theory, the, the idea would be is that, is that if you start to introduce contracts into human interaction and the, um, the way the money unit um, or the way the contract is expressed in terms of the money unit, then you begin to turn games from a non-cooperative idea into a cooperative idea. And he had he had this idea of modelling coalitions, um, and I think he kind of reached this conclusion that um, you couldn't kind of politically implement it, but you could kind of just uh, gradually over time just kind of change things by changing the kind of way people uh, understand money. So that's it's quite a deep subject matter, and um, it's, it's quite a difficult thing to kind of put in a nutshell. But that was kind of well, that was the idea. Be already done that. Sorry, say that again, sorry. So what, in that case, wouldn't have gold already accomplished that? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So that's a good point. So, yeah, so years ago, there was something called like a, a gold standard or a gold clause where people would kind of put a gold clause into contracts to kind of get away from the inflationary or deflationary effects of, of uh, currencies. Um, 
but then in, I think it was the 1930s, the, um, America kind of uh, abolished the gold standard or made it illegal. But I think Satoshi was a, like he was like a, like a gold well, that, and I know that. Hold on, and, I'm sorry, but but the, but the point you know uh, I think it was Aon was making is that you know gold existed was used as a contracting system. You, what you're saying is correct that the gold was you know gold clauses existed in contracts for money, and gov- and the U.S. government along with others outlawed the contracting in gold um, uh, for decades, and yeah, that sh- yeah. that should. Be, it should be self-evident from that history that what Nash is saying, right, about this ideal money, which people used at the time, people used gold as their ideal money. That was the ideal against the, uh, the, the which the others were measured. All of the state monies yeah. were pegged to gold, and gold was used yeah. as a unit of account. It was contracted with, and um, so this I, this idea that that would compel states to to not inflate their currency is, is what I meant when I said naive, right? It already happened, yeah. right? We already had this and states, instead of yeah. getting closer to gold, the whole reason they created state monies in the first place was to collect the gold and then tax through their money, right? So they ended up with the gold and they taxed through signage, right? Through, through monopoly control of the printing press. So, the opposite yeah. of what Nash suggested actually did happen, right? The the deviation from the norm is what is what happened, and it was enforced through currency controls um, around the world, and continues to be enforced through currency controls around the world. So it's not like this didn't didn't happen, right? <laughs> this did happen, and it does still exist, right? That possibility still exists. So. It, it, to my answer right off the bat to his, you know, the proposal that some ideal money would compel states to move to that money and therefore surrender their tax power in the money was extremely naive. All states have to say is, no, <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. We like our tax yeah. power. Yeah, it sounds like to me, to put it simply, is that it's an assumption that the state will value ideal money over right. monop- over their monopoly money. Well, it's an assumption. I think, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I, I never met the man, but um, from what I've read about Nash, um, he he he's not like a libertarian, right? He might you might read some of his money talk and, and get that from him, but he, he very much you know a, a traditional kind of statist of of the twentieth century. Um, you know, not not being judgmental about it. That's just who he is, and. Um, a lot of his, you know, a lot of his statements and arguments were in support of the state, you know, being able to defend itself against other states, right? And the state defending its money would go right along with that. Like, so in other words, the point I'm trying to make um, is that he tends to take a very kind of a naive view of the state itself, right? Like, it will do the right thing. If it had a good money to model its money against, it would it would do that. It would. It would not steal people's savings. The reality is, and I, and I don't think he really understands this, is that the purpose of state money is to take people's savings. That's why it exists. It's so that they can tax trans uh, tra- tax and not do it transparently. And if he understood that, he, you know, I think he, he would realize that his argument doesn't hold any water because it's not like the state is, is missing 
a good peg to peg against. And if it just had that, it could stabilize its currency. It doesn't want stable currency. It wants a continually inflating currency, which is what every single state money is around the world, even though it doesn't have to be. You just peg to gold. Right. That was the, so, that was the argument you, in the first you, place. You, you, you just peg to gold. And of course, if they had done that, it would have stayed stable. Yeah. They value the monopoly over that, so it makes. Are you, know, are, are you kind of saying that the whole thing is a conspiracy? No, nope. I'm just saying that no. the state uses money. It's a value to, judgment. The state uses money to tax. That's why it has state money. That's why it exists. If it if it didn't want to tax through its money, it would just let you know private companies make their own monies and not be involved in in money. Um, you know, I mean, it's not like private society doesn't have the ability to, to devise standards of weights and measure. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what you're saying is, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying. Um, it's quite interesting what you're saying, and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks to the audience. No worries. Thanks for feedback. Hey, to jump back to the fifty-one uh, percent attack thing and the, the fee pressure, I mean, it's kind of an arbitrary question, but what came to my mind is another method: is people, um, you know extremists, maxi extremist types, sabotaging white market miners, like sabotaging their farms because of the, you know, the 51% censorship. I could see that happening as a potential, along with fee pressure. Well, yeah, I mean, open combat's always a solution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what you, you know, it's essentially what you're talking about is taking up arms against the, uh, yeah. the censor, which is, Exactly. It is an option. I mean, yeah. I think the, the, the kind of idea behind Bitcoin is that, you know, uh, there's this tool that allows us to hide better, right? Um, like, how do, we, how do you hide financial transactions electronically? You were, it's really hard. Uh, well, now there's a better tool, which means, you know, less, con less, less direct conflict, right? Um, yeah. But if you, you know, if you just want to get, if you want to get your freedom back through, you know, eliminate the taxation, you know, you can always, you know, set up the barricades and break out the pitchforks. That's the tried and true, you know, historical standard. <laughs> yeah. And, and also like in that 51% attack scenario, the black market miners have a lot more risk. Like that risk sharing really doesn't, level out for the black market miners because one they're risking getting their you know putting that hash rate together and then mining a block and then realizing they're not majority and getting orphaned instantly and they're also risking you know being raided by you know some government agency so well, that's that's the risk really piled on that's true in any black market and that risk is priced in right and any black yeah. market is is going to have a uh you're going to experience a, pr a price premium be, you know for operating um, at risk of you know, state attacks, and that price premium will be will be paid for by fees, or it won't it won't be, or the service won't be provided. I mean, there's certainly, you know, you can imagine there are probably some illegal things that don't get provided by the market because they would be too expensive for most people to pay for, right? So they don't they don't get provided, and that's true of any good, right? There's some like I, I want to go to Mars and I want to pay ten bucks, but you know nobody's nobody's providing that service because it's too expensive. Right? I can't I can't get it at that price. So it may be if if providing the service is too expensive, you know this premium that you're talking about is too high, then people won't pay it and they won't have. Bitcoin transactions.
Right. And that, that's, that's what yeah. we mean with survival. But the, the fee differential, the difference between the going market fee for censored and uncensored transactions is the premium that are be, is being paid and therefore collected by black market miners. And what you're suggesting is that premium may not be high enough for them to do it. And that is, of course, true. It may be high enough. But how big is that premium? That premium will continue to rise until one of two things happens. It's too high and people won't want to, they won't pay anymore for the transaction confirmation. Uh, or the um, remember that the premium is what the state is losing in their in their mining subsidies to, to mine a lower. They're basically mining transactions with lower fees than is justified by the hash rate. So they're, that's the loss they're taking. So either people don't want to pay the fee anymore, or the state doesn't want to take, it doesn't want to subsidize their attack anymore. One of those two things happens. So what you're doing is you're, you're looking at a, at a, you know, comparison between this, these two numbers, how much is the state willing to tax every 10 minutes to pay for their hash rate subsidy versus how much are people willing to pay in a, as a premium, not their total fees, but their premium on their fees um, to get those transactions confirmed. I mean, you look at it that way, yeah. it you know, it looks kind of bleak. Um, that, yeah, that puts it really <laughs> right? clear, like, like you usually do, so it makes perfect sense. Because, yeah, there's a premium on, you know, dark net markets because people have risk, right, you right. know, and they add the risk into the, in the price. You'll be able to measure that premium under a Bitcoin 51% uh, attack just by access to the public transaction pool, right? You take a look at the transaction pool and you see transactions clearing at, you know, 100 Satoshis per byte or something, right? And you see other transactions not clearing and the average. Uh, so so you, you add it all up and you can look at, OK, I could mine this block, that block, that block, that block. And and you realize that the the difference between the block, the, the reward and the blocks that are getting mined versus the reward and the blocks that are not getting mined that you could mine is, say, say it's one hundred thousand you know, dollars or Say ten, say ten thousand dollars per block difference. What that could be taken if you wanted to mine. Now, okay, that's sixty thousand, uh, sixty thousand dollars per hour times twenty four dollars per day. That's the difference between those two reward levels. Now, if I, you know, if this, I just break out the spreadsheet and go, okay, how much, um, how much hash rate do I need to to get to be able to overcome their fifty one percent? And to, re and to um, capture these rewards. And um, presumably it would be worth it because those rewards pay for the hash rate, right? Um, so the question then becomes, well, does the state continue to increase its subsidy as I apply my hash rate and I still can't win? And then do fees continue to rise as I apply, you know, as, as I attempt to do this? That's what I'm talking about. This difference will be very visible. You just look at the total reward. I mean, you know, the total fee reward in in uh, in confirmed blocks versus uh, potential blocks, and you can be able to publish this number. And all these potential miners are going to sit there and go, "It's either worth it or it's not worth it." So, so then, uh, uh, kind of there, you're getting into kind of you're kind of getting into like social group theory. I'm just I'm so, just looking at it's just economics, right? It's, it's, there's there's always demand for some product out there, right? Like again, I said I want I want trips to Mars, 
there's demand. There's a lot it's of people that go rewarding to, people. There'd be there'd be a lot of people that go to Mars. And there's other people that are entrepreneurs that are sitting out there going, How much will it cost me to take somebody to Mars? You know, and Musk is probably out there going, Okay, I can make it work, right? <laughs> right. But but up until now, there hasn't been anybody willing to do that because they're gonna lose money. So nobody nobody yeah. has enough money to be able to to support that. So there are there are products that just don't come to market. But what, you know, I know you're trying to look at this as a kind of a game theoretic thing, but this is just the market. Every product follows this market dynamic. Eric, Eric wait, oh. so okay, so John, got, John, hold on a sec, hold on a, a sec. Uh, so Eric, in the in this, um, you know, this this basically this model that you're talking about, uh, or you know, what what inevitably the, the battle is going to be. Like I had brought up in the talk, I mean, do you think that it's going to lead to governments uh, trying to uh, obtain unrealized capital gains on on Bitcoin because of that as an incentive to, to kind of put things in their favor? Uh, not sure I follow your question. Well, I, I mean, I know what unrealized capital gains are. You, you know, you, you're saying that the government will force you to realize those gains and then tax you for it? Yes. Well, the gov government knows who you are, how much Bitcoin you have, um, and given the transparent nature of, of Bitcoin, we'll be able to easily assess that and then, uh, you know, ask for their, their pound of flesh. Well, they haven't asked for unrealized capital gains on anything else. Uh, well, I mean, in the U.S., for example, uh, an unrealized capital gain could be also called a property tax, right? Um you know, I have some land and every year I pay $10,000 for the right to, to, to have the land. And uh, it, it's based on the valuation. So it's, it's, um, I don't know, similar, right? Uh, taxing you on your property. And some, you know, some countries do tax on your property and, you know, fine. I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't put that beyond, uh, you know, the possibility of any, any, any government to tax, to, to employ essentially property taxes. But again, um, we're talking about the difference between white and black, black market, right? White market people pay their tax or they become black market people. Black market people, why would they bother paying the taxes? Um, if you're saying like one can't, one can't avoid being white market because there's no privacy, then we're just left with the status quo. That's the way the existing financial system works. Right. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm getting at there. And, yeah, when you're talking about you know, capital gains, I think you're assuming gains, right? Money doesn't really, money, you know, money has capital gains associated with it. It's some other, you know, some other state's money. Your state will tax you that difference, but, but money doesn't really have gains. Not, you know, money fluctuates relative to other money in terms of its purchasing power, but, but um, it doesn't have yield, right? So there's no reason to assume gains. You know, just, just as much assume losses as gain. It's not like... I got one more quick question. I'm wondering, Eric, if you have any knowledge on the history of the invalidate block command that they put in Bitcoin Core and why they put it in there. And I've heard people, I mean, even Adam Back say, you know, after if there's a sensor, we'll just, you know, call invalidate block and invalidate their blocks. And I'm like, well, that kind of defeats the whole purpose of the system. Well, that, that was, but, um, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, I'm not familiar with our, um, um, the, deep, the specifics in their code of that, but I know what it is. And, um, you know, it's, um, you, it's similar to just saying, you know, yeah, creating a checkpoint, but you, you would have to actually mine a block you want on a different 
chain to make it work with the checkpoint. So you can say this is, you know, this is an invalid block, and of course it's a, it's it hard forks you off onto another branch. Um, that doesn't really. I mean, it's it's what you're saying, right? It it eliminates Bitcoin. Um, this was the this was the prevailing yeah, like... this was the prevailing theory on censorship resistance in Bitcoin um, up until I proposed that it was based on fees, right? That it was it was you go back in Bitcoin Dev, and I even had some discussions with people about this, you know, early on. And the argument was always um, that the way you deal with the 51% attack is too hard fork. It was the only answer. Nobody had another answer. Satoshi didn't have another answer. I think he proposed somewhere that you know people could donate to the cause, right? Uh, um, economically kind of irrational solution. So, um, you know, I'm proposing that the only economically rational solution without abandoning Bitcoin um, is is fees. When you when you hard fork Bitcoin to, um, you know, by introducing a new rule, you've created a new coin. And the trick is getting everybody to follow you to that new coin. Well, the you is the important part, the person who makes that decision, right? Um, now, the whole point of mining in Bitcoin is that we can collectively come to eventual consistency and agree um, on that question. If we're no longer using mining to agree on that question, we've basically eliminated Bitcoin. Now we're relying on proof of Twitter or some other thing. Right. We, we basically don't have a solution to the Byzantine generals problem anymore. Um, so that's one big part of it is it eliminates the solution. We're back to where we started and eventually it devolves into, you know, some other consensus system. Like, how do we come to agreement on, you know, is it, is it Blockstream that publishes the weekly block? <laughs> but then then we're down to um, even though we've done this, what prevents the what prevents the miners from just you know, the fifty-one percent attacker from just switching over to the new chain and doing it again, 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 again. So we're we're and we'd be, every block would be we'd be we'd be left with um, a d new decision to make on who to follow for the next block. And this has actually happened with various shit coins, where they've had to go on and publish a block and then publish another one and publish another one, right? Yeah, I know BSV went through it. Yeah, and it was. Twitter, it was it was every week, and it was it yeah. was exactly what I said. What would ha would happen if Bitcoin did that? But because there was no other answer, that was the answer. That was the standard answer. Um, you know, back like seven years ago or so. And, was that why they put that flag in there? Because I know yeah. it wasn't in there originally. No, I mean that that was um, oh. there'd be no other reason to add that except to facilitate yeah. a community wide um, hard forking to another chain. Right, we're just basically going to say the censor has just the censor has just published this block. We're going to reject it, which will allow non-censors to compete. Okay, but everybody has to do that at the same time, right? Or you know, um, everybody has to do it, right? And they all have to agree on it. What if somebody says, "No, no, I'm going to do this block. We we'll do that block." And what we can, you know, how do we how do we know that the block that was just mine was a censor block or a non-censor block? I mean, we can look and we can try to inspect the contents. But how do we know what the fees are that are actually being paid? For example, if we had a very low fee block, we might assume it's a censor block, right? It's much lower fees than the rent. But maybe that maybe that miner is getting paid on the side, which is perfectly legitimate, right? They're getting paid for the space. Um, the, the reason fees are in transactions is because it makes it easy to publish the fee to anybody who mines the transactions. In other words, anonymously or pseudonymously. 
if you're paying somebody on the side, you don't really have that mechanism to pay anybody anonymously, but it's still legitimate. You're still paying for the space. It's not censorship or anything like that. So, um, you know, miner can mine their own transactions, put no fees on them. Miner can mine some, you know, exchanges transactions, put a low fee on it and get paid back some other way. It doesn't matter. So in other words, it's very hard. It's, it's basically impossible to look at a block and say, this is a low fee block or not low fee block. So you're going to have to look, do some kind of semantic evaluation to find out, well, if this is, if this is a block that we all as a community decide we should reject. Can you imagine like <laughs> this becomes the norm yeah. and everybody's like, no, 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 this yeah. is a good block. This is about, it's got my NFTs in it, you know, but, but <laughs> so all of a sudden we're, you know, having a Twitter war over what's the next block to block to, to reject. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a really silly idea when you think about it. <laughs> But it is, you know, it does have that legacy of being the only answer until we realize that fee differential is what's going to do it. And, and you know, if, you, if you're really going to change to a new uh, chain, you can't just invalidate the block. You have to invalidate the mining algorithm, right? You have to, you have to basically... Yeah, which punishes everyone. Including the non-sensors. Yeah, you know, whether or not you're. Yeah, like you, 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 you kind of have you'd have to kind of change the rules of the consensus. Well, you are changing the rules of the consensus as soon as you publish an invalid block. As soon as you say this block, this valid block is not valid, you've changed the rule. You've added a new rule. The new rule is that yeah. block's invalid, and now you need to add another rule to prevent the fifty-one percent of the mining power from just switching to your new chain, which they can do trivially. Yeah. So you publish another rule, yeah. which basically. Um, changes the hashing algorithm. So maybe changes change one bit yeah. something, but now the hardware is no good. So now everybody's got, you know everybody's on a level playing field, and the hardware you know builds up again. So who who has a better ability? By the way, this is all in my book wiki topic on on the subject called the. Yeah, this stuff. this uh, your analysis is like your analysis is is very interesting. I've got to say, and um, well, the the, the question so, is, yeah, it's good stuff. is is you know, if you if you invalidate the mining uh, hardware, you what you've done is you've foisted a capital loss on you know on the on all miners, right? They've they've all lost that investment. But the question is, who's going to come back? Who's going to tool up the good miners or the bad miners? Right. So what yeah. I argue is that the, the yeah. larger miners are more profitable. We already talked we talked about that earlier in Monero talk, and the ones that are more profitable have better access to capital, larger operations more savings right they're the ones that are going to retool and come yeah. back not in the small ones the ones that you wiped out for the second third fourth time they're not coming back um and i i actually put this to the test to a test i i asked um one of the largest miners in the world we were in a panel together and i just leaned over and i asked him say what would you do if if you know there was a hard fork we changed the mining algorithm he's like ah i just retool and I, i'll be back like you know within a week <laughs> whatever like he he would come right back Otherwise, right, he, wouldn't, right, he yeah, yeah. wouldn't be deterred yeah. by that um and you know you imagine your garage miner or whatever your small time miner and they, they get wiped out by that a few times they don't have the capital to keep doing that and governments of course would be the last ones to be wiped out because they have tax money so it doesn't make sense. You're wiping out the wrong people, and you've broken the yeah. entire Bitcoin model around, you know, consensus solving. You know, solving the Byzantine generals problems. So you don't have a consensus system. Yeah, it's chain. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. So no, it's good. It's good stuff. Yeah, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, I'm just saying, like, when it comes right down to it, you have to, you know, if you're if you're these things might happen, right? It could happen maybe once or twice, whatever, but it can't be 
it can't be the solution to this question. It has to be based on economics. And that has to be based on fees. And that has to um, be based on demand. And um, ultimately, that's one of the things I, I work towards. You know, I want to I want to work towards a system that can operate in that kind of hostile environment and allow people to solve that. You know, the problem we were talking before about how to how do people collaborate to, you know, kind of increase their fees? Well, this this should actually happen. This is part of the inherent design of Bitcoin. And Satoshi didn't even recognize it. He didn't recognize that fees naturally increasing with um, slow confirmations would increase um, resistance to the 51% attack and be the solution. He never articulated that and articulated other things like, you know, community donation, I think. So it's interesting that it, it's just inherently already there. Um, I, I think I think he did articulate the majority, the, the kind of the, the significance or importance of the majority decision. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it, he was well aware it, of that. It, you know, in the white. It, yeah. In, so in the white paper, he says proof of work kind of solves two problems. One, it avoids fraud or double spending. And then he goes on to describe proof of work as avoiding um, or it, says it represents or it overcomes the problem of determination of representation in majority decision making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's kind of talking about how is the majority represented. And it solves uh, the coordination problem. Yeah. And it's not even, yeah, it's not even and, intended to be the kind of a majority rule thing. It's 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 that's really not the it's not like a vote. You know, it's just that um, whoever puts the most capital into this, it's not it's not people. Right. It's not majority by people. It's majority by cash invested by the amount of capital put yeah. into mining. Yeah. And so uh, that could be one person. It could be one government. Right. It could. It, so it's not like meant to be democratic. But we have this um, we have the solution to um, coming to eventual agreement on what the history is without having yeah. while at the same time having everybody at odds with each other, everybody competing with each other, yet still coming to what in computer science we call eventual consistency. Like, you know, not trying to keep everything consistent all the time, but reaching consistently consistency pretty quickly and pretty reliably over time. Isn't it, that's kind of isn't that game theory though? That's kind of how I understand game theory no. in terms of how how do you reach a kind of no an agreed? That's how I, well. No game, okay. game theory. Game theory tells you um, it's not a process to reach eventual consistency. That's 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 like prog database programming. Um, how, how do you take a distributed? When you talk about eventual consistency, we're talking about distributed systems, like uh, often databases, yeah, or data on many machines around the world. And how do we keep that data in sync? Well, in the old days, you would you would actually couple those machines closely, and make sure they're always the same. Like you know, uh, in you know, in, in programming, you might have a critical section. Nothing can happen until they're all the same. But modern distributed systems don't work that way because that just doesn't work at scale. So um, the way eventual consistency works is changes propagate through the system over time. And eventually um, those changes get everywhere, but there may be new changes coming. So you may never have actual consistency, but you are always approaching consistency. And that's the way Bitcoin works. There's no guarantee that anybody's ever gonna have the same you know, set of blocks. 
but over time we're all going to have kind of like nice kind of asymptote a, a, kind of like an asymptote kind of thing or asymptotically right, right, right. kind of approach exactly you can think of yeah. it that way we're we're always approaching the same history and if there's enough time where nobody has published a new block we will all have the same history right if we've all yeah, seen, yeah. Kind of... we've all seen all the information that's published we haven't missed anything um, and we there's been there's been some time going by, so this, you know the churn is not happening anymore. Worst case scenario in Bitcoin is you have um, you have some number of nodes that still differ because they have the exact same amount of work on two different chains. That's still possible, yep. but it probabilistically yep. becomes less and less likely over time. Yep, exactly. So yeah, we call that eventual consistency. Game theory would say, well, you know. Um, this is the decision that this set of people are going to come to because they're under these pressures and they have these objectives um, based on, yeah, based on these mean, rules. Yeah. So, I mean, well, when I kind of say, when I say game theory, um, it, like game theory is like a wide, you know, I can kind of just say game theory. It's like game theory in itself is like loads of different branches to it. You know, there's different types of games. I mean, lo lots of different types of games. It's got different applications, um, but kind of it personally, I just think Bitcoin is the work of a game theorist. But I mean, that's like a we could kind of we could talk for days on end on that. But uh, what, what you what you said there, Eric, your analysis well, is um, it's classic. It's pretty pre it's it's pretty precise, well, and um, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. It sounds like we're kind of arguing, but what you're saying is um, perfectly valid. Yeah, I mean, this is. You could also say that Bitcoin is the is the work of you know somebody who had some experience in distributed systems, right? Because this is Definitely. eventual consistency is a pretty kind of the standard model for database synchronization. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no, there's, that's that's how distributed systems work in general, right? It, it's not like that uncommon. Um, I mean, are you are you aware of Nash's are you aware of Nash's paper that he wrote in 1954 called Parallel Control, and he basically set out an architecture for a di distributed computer network, and he he more the conclusion was is that the human brain is a highly parallel setup, and that the human but the human brain is decentralized, but there comes a point where. Um, like just people will, will kind of reach an equilibrium or uh, some. Yeah, but I, I don't know. Have you, have you ever read that Parallel Control? No. He wrote no. it for the Rands Corporation in 1954. But essentially, he's talking about the importance of decentralization well, um, within electronic brains. Sure. This, and, um, it's a heavily studied, you know, subject of, you know, the idea of, of um, you know, models of thought and processing power and distributed systems. I mean, I met Leslie Lamport. He was a a Turing Award winner, but you know we did some work with him. He worked for Microsoft Research when I was there, and I think his I think his aside from being the guy that invented LaTeX and created LaTeX, he was also you know kind of a ex expert PhD you know uh, world renowned guru in this idea of distributed systems. Yeah. Um, so you know it's a, it's a it's a large discipline, and of course relevance to thought, human mind, all that stuff. But you know I, I like I said I when it comes to Nash. Um, I just I just don't see any connection to Bitcoin at all. He's talked about money some small amount. 
I don't, I don't know well, why there's such a fascination yeah. with it by a small group of people, but um, it just well, he, doesn't seem compelling. So, so, so Nash did... Nash did write a paper in 1954 called Parallel Control, and it was about decentralization. And then later on, he starts talking about ideal money. And then, so you've got the the connection with that to Bitcoin is obviously like the decentralized aspect. Thousands of papers written on distributed computing. I mean, thousands. Well, well, Nash wrote wrote his in 1954. I mean, that was like most people didn't have television sets in those days, and he's writing papers on distributed or. Centralized computer network, so it's what well, it is kind of the only one. I mean, there was a lot of people working in that field. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, well, there was, I wouldn't say a lot, but there was a few, you John, know, it was von Neumann and John von Neumann, you know, and, and uh, you know, invented game theory basically, uh, along with just about everything else. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. That, that is, that, yeah, and Turing was, was investigating um, models of thought, um, obviously. Yeah, so it, yeah. You know, there's a lot of this stuff. And, you know, taking these two thin threads together to try to figure out, you know, whether he's Satoshi or not, I think it's kind of silly. He showed no no indication that he had the ability to, to do Bitcoin. Um, well, he, he could code in. He was like coding in C++ at that time, around the time yeah. Bitcoin was released. Right. Well, um, I, I really just don't, yeah, you know, I don't care who Satoshi is. So. The, 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 point, the point's been made. I mean, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Uh, Again, really, yeah, yeah, don't, don't really care. Uh, Aon, if you if you could, just, Eric, I, I I think we probably have taken up more time than than you have to offer. But if um, we could maybe just close it out, Aon, if you if you want to uh, just talk with Eric a little bit about you know Monero's ASIC resistance and how uh, you know it uses CPU mining for the purposes of of creating a more decentralized censorship resistant network. I'm just, I would just love to have you guys kind of talk a little bit back and forth about that. Cause I, I was asking Eric on the show and I feel like I wasn't expressing it well enough. And I, I'd love to kind of hear Eric's opinion. If he understands it a little bit better from you, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the best person to ask cause I don't know the, the nitty gritty of the hashing algorithm. I know that. I mean, at one point I thought, ASIC resistance was, you know, a fairy tale because obviously you can optimize any hashing algorithm with, you know, enough time and resources. So, but yeah, I don't really know the nitty gritty on it. I think the analogy I make is that, you know, CPUs are more readily available than ASICs and they're easier to hide, but that means they're also more readily available to an attacker. So it's hard to say. I mean, the, the fee pressure is really the the bare bones of it. That's kind of if in in the event of a fifty one percent censorship attack, that's really you have to push the fee pressure. Yeah, that's, I mean that's the way I look at it. You know, there there may or may not be technical, you know, um, correctness in these you know, these different type of proof algorithms, but fundamentally um, they all come down to anybody can mine, which means anybody can get this stuff and. The ability to the ability to accumulate some stuff is is really not the basis of, of security. Um, it's it's economic. It's it's ongoing cost, right? Um, and presumably, like I said, any, anybody can get anybody can get chips. So and anybody can get ASICs ultimately too. It's, I mean, it may not always be the case. It may not be the case right now even. Um, 
but ultimately we're just talking about machines and um, there's no reason why the black market can't acquire the same machines as everybody else. Right? Um, so I, right. I, that to me is not really, there's always been this argument, you know, by people, actually, I think that largely this came from the same problem we were discussing before where there was, there was no answer to the 51% attack. There just wasn't a good answer, a rational answer. And so you, you see, if you look back at, you know, old presentations, um, I won't name any names, but people have been presenting and, and, you know, kind of cheerleading on Bitcoin for a long time, doing, doing some great work, but not, not having an answer to this question. The answer, you know, when people would ask it um, after reading the paper would, would be, well, you know, um, the amount of capital required to, to uh, build up mines to compete with Bitcoin is prohibitive or um, be too hard to get, you know, it's part of the same problem, too hard to get the, the specialized hardware, the ASICs, there's not enough in the world, or um, we can hard fork, right? Those were some of the main arguments to say it was impossible. And all those are, we already talked about the hard forking problem, you know, scenario, why, why that's so problematic. But this idea that building up 51% uh, hash power costs a huge amount of money is, is just ridiculous. It's profitable. Right, it's it's happened before. If you if you're the fifty one percent miner, you're making more mining money mining than anybody else because you're the largest miner. Um, and as we talked about, you know, on the on the podcast, that largest miner tends to always be over time the most profitable. So if it's profitable to get there, then execute your tech. What did it cost you? Now, um, you know, you. you People will say, well, you know, the, the, the price would go to zero if somebody attacked Bitcoin. I'm like, well, as, as we talked about, that's also an assumption that may not hold up. If somebody, if the government kind of, you know, approves their censored coin and, you know, maintains a hash bar attack to enforce it, price may go up. They may profit even more off of that. So that's, that's not, that's not a provable solution to the, uh, you know, censorship either. Um, and I think, I think the reason these theories came about is because there just wasn't a good answer. I think now that we have, you know, a proper explanation for how the economic model works, we can stop clinging to those ideas, you know, invalidate block and, you know, I've got a bigger mind than you and you could never get possibly get a mind bigger than mine as a government who could just walk in and take my mind, right? Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's, or, or the, another one was jurisdictional arbitrage. Well, you know, you might be able to, you know, stop me from using my Bitcoin here, but I could go to Zimbabwe or, you know, or or uh, you know the Congo or someplace where they don't care, and, and I keep doing it. Great, but I can fifty-one percent attack you from one place on the earth, which I can't do to gold. Right, that's that's a weakness that Bitcoin has that gold doesn't have. You can't attack it centrally from one place on the earth. So, um, we we have an answer to that question, an economically sound, rational answer that most people seem to understand. Um, what what's concerned? What I think concerns them once they understand it is that it may not be good enough. And I never tell people this, you know, yeah, and never ever tell people. Where they get to hang up. Yeah, it, it would never tell people that it's good enough. It may be good enough. And what was going to make it good enough is the value that people put in their transacting, um, in, in confirming these unapproved transactions. If it's just white market money, like every other money, it's not valuable for me to, if it's just like, I want, you know, programmable money. Yeah. You'll get that with your CDBCs, right? That, that's not a, that's not a value proposition for Bitcoin, programmable money. 
not in any way. The value bop, because that will be doable with state money. They'll just apply their signage and their transparency to it. So for Bitcoin to be valuable as a you know tool for human liberty, it has to it has to be valuable enough for people to want to pay for censorship resistance. The, and that value has to be incremental over what's available in the white market, which rules out all things like contracting and programmability and, you know, all this stuff, because it's not going to be a value add. That will already exist in the white market. Yeah. yeah, all this stuff kind of made me come to the realization that proof of work doesn't solve the Byzantine general's problem. It's just the best working model that it currently exists, but it's not really a solution because there's, like you said, you can't prove that it's viable that can overcome 51%. And that's where the hangup is. Right. I mean, what's interesting in Bitcoin is like, you can, you can have a 99.9% miner mining all the transactions from now to eternity. As long as they're not censoring, who cares? Right. It's no harm. <laughs> I mean, presumably they're economically rational. They're collecting their fees and they're getting as many transactions confirmed as they can. And it's all good. Uh, which is, we've been over 50% before. Um, the, so. Yeah. G -hash. The, the, yeah. The, the 50. It, so the Byzantine generals problem is perfectly, you know, e e even if you have a sensor, the problem is still solved, right? We, we can come to agreement on what the next block is with a majority hash power uh, miner. That still works. We're all gonna still agree what the next block is. So that's not really the problem. It's not a failure to have, to have a solution to the Byzantine generals problem. The problem is that they can exclude certain transactions from that, from that um, collectively approved solution. And what, another thing that's interesting, and I, and I mentioned this in, in my writing, and, my old talks is that every miner censors to some extent. Now, if you, if you, if you use the term a little bit loosely, right? Some miners mine empty blocks. Why? Generally because they haven't had time yet to formulate a new block and an empty block is still worth better than no block. So once they formulated a new block, then they'll start mining on that. And every once in a while that intermediate block gets confirmed. Okay. Well, they excluded all these possible transactions. Is that censorship? If you want to look at it that way, Another thing to consider is that given, you know, given say 10,000, 100,000 million transactions in the transaction pool that you could choose from, changing every second, right, that set of transactions changes with every new transaction introduced, with every block confirmed, it changes, which means you have to go through that entire set to try to find the most optimal block to mine on next. And I, and I tell you, I think we did this math on a, on a typical computer like five years ago with 100,000 transactions in the transaction pool, you know, to do the math to produce the optimal or um, the optimal block to mine on. At the time, I think for 100,000 transactions, um, typical transactions took about six hours. So you have six hours of computing to get to an optimal solution and your set changes every second, which means you have to recompute. Every second you have to do six hours of work. Right? And now just increase the number of transactions, increase the complexity of the transactions. Um, you know, computers are getting faster too, but still there's no possible way a miner can pick an optimal set of transactions. They have to actually mine most of the time, all the time in order to be profitable. 
So miners are going to arbitrarily pick transactions, which means they're going to arbitrarily exclude transactions. So miners are always excluding transactions for some reason or another. Who knows why? They can do it for whatever reason they want. It doesn't matter. The reason it doesn't matter is because it's presumably inconsistent. And as a result, eventually your transaction will get selected based on the speed concept. And if you crank up the fees high enough, it'll stand out enough that it will get selected through one of these more naive algorithms, right? Knapsack solved. So, but they all censor. So even in that censorship, even that censorship scenario, we wouldn't even know right away that there's a censor. Exactly, take because you have no way while. to know what the optimal set would have been. There's no way to know that. I mean, it would take you years to figure that out and every, every second that went along on all the possible, and you don't know what that miner was seeing. One transaction can make all the difference in the world. So yeah, you don't know, but you, you will know through some kind of like probabilistic, Eventually. you know, you, you'll look at yeah. it and you go, okay, you know, basic transaction, depending on- but that only buffer one... just is like a leeway for the sensor also. Right, but I, so I, I think like realistically, if there's a real like government sensor blocking all transactions of a certain type, we will eventually, you know, you'll eventually be able to see that. Um, somebody will introduce higher and higher and higher fee transact, you know, transaction, which is not going to get confirmed. Um, or if it does get confirmed, you know, the person, well, put it this way. If, if they're not enforcing their censorship, those transactions will get confirmed. They'll get confirmed on the 40%. Yeah, I see more orphan blocks. Too. Well, they'll get confirmed on the 49%, right? So yeah, you're going to see... Kind of like Ethereum right now. You're, yeah, you're going to see enforcement. And when I say, you know, there's 51% minor, they can censor. That doesn't prevent people from com getting confirmation. So they just get confirmed on the 49%. But if they enforce their censorship, that's not building on... Uh, other blocks, right? Other uh, non-censoring blocks. So if they don't build on non-censoring blocks, you're going to see the orphans. And you're going to see orphans yeah. with large time delays. So it will be very visible yeah. at some point. And um, I don't think it will, you know. But the, but the point is that, you know, it really doesn't matter until there's some kind of consistency and enforcement, right? So you, you can have big miners, you can have arbitrary censorship, you can have even intentional censorship. But as long as there's not enforcement going on, um, which requires 51% and, you know, concerted effort over time, then you're fine. So Bitcoin does a pretty good job of, you know, solving that, that problem. Um, and it provides an economic uh, counteracting force to being a, you know, a censoring enforcing 50, 51% of, um, it's just, the question is whether that force is strong enough to counter that sensor. But, you know, when I painted the picture of, you know, mm -hmm. just looking at the transaction, somebody running a website that basically points out, you know, okay, you know, you know there's, there's a hundred blocks worth of transactions sitting in here with this huge additional fees that you could mine um, um, versus the sensor. If you can just get to 51%, you know, probably imagine that people are going to look at that, do the math and decide on whether they want to, they want to throw their hat in the ring. But the, uh, I mean, the sensor may keep going, right? Keep not building on those blocks. You get a, you get a fork in the chain, and that fork could be very deep, right? You get the market making a long-term bet on getting all these transactions confirmed. So you get a, you get a secondary chain that's, 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 um, that's not mining on the sensor's blocks, and you get the sensor not mining on, on the, on the, on the uh, split chain, and they could go on, you know. 
GC, just one hour, that's six blocks. That's a pretty deep fork already. But you could go on days, you could have hundreds of blocks. And so when I, one of the things I do when I, um, in my node, my implementation is I anticipate long, long uh, reorgs, deep reorgs. And I think a lot of node implementations probably don't look so, because it, it gets, it can get challenging to implement that um, deep reorgs. Um, I think some use your node doesn't consider transaction confirmed until X number of oh, blocks. It's not, about, it's not about that. It's not about considering confirmed. Um, um, the, the transaction would be considered, you know, it's considered confirmed if it's, if it's, it's, it's in a mind block that's in the strong chain. Um, but it's up to the user of the node to decide whether they are comfortable enough with that level of confirmation, right? But if they, the, the, the thing with reorgs is you, if you have a secondary chain that's getting longer and longer and longer, um, you, you have to store that somewhere, right? You have to, that's competing with your, with your main chain. And if it can be arbitrarily long and you're storing it in memory, you could have problems. It becomes kind of like the, like the mempool. Um, you know, how many thousand blocks or how many hundred blocks you're willing to keep on a side chain, just, you know, hanging, hanging around. Um, now it might just, might just be headers, right? But you have to maintain that state somewhere. And what happens if there's a hash power war going on and it's very close? 51% doesn't always win. They could lose. So they could, they could, they could be the short chain for a couple hours. They could be the long chain. They could go back and forth. And this actually happened, I think, with the Ether Classic split or something, you know, when they did it. You, you can have this back and forth, which means as a node, you have to be ready to swap back and forth between these two sets of confirmed transactions. Now, in our implementation, the transactions are just transactions. They're on the disk. They're not moving anywhere. Um, all, you're, all you're doing is moving some pointers around. But um, I, it didn't used to work that way. I think it was modeled more on the way Satoshi's worked, which wasn't, wasn't very comfortable for, for deep reorgs. And of course, if you're pruning, deep reorgs can become a potential problem. Um, so you have to set pruning limits and resync if you, if you exceed them. There's a number of considerations. So I always try to keep that in mind when we're looking at, um, looking at the node that uh, reorg depth is not, you know, you can't assume it's going to be one, two, maybe three blocks. <laughs> it could be hundreds and it could go back and forth. What's the extent that a implementation can track a split that far? I mean, before running out of resources, just based on the well, node, my, the resources of the node? My implementation, you know, the Bitcoin implementation has no limit to what it can track. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to... Just the hardware? It's not going to track back prior to um, the checkpoint blocks, um, but that's pretty far back. That's a few hundred thousand blocks. Um, yeah. Because it doesn't, it, it doesn't require any more space. It doesn't require any more searching. Um, still constant time lookup, still same exact same amount of space. The um, Bitcoin is always building a candidate um, index, an index of the candidate headers, um, the next blocks, and always has the confirmed index as well. So in a situation where there's no, there's no competing um, chain, they're the same, uh, but they can differ. But this, you know, the size, you know, the, we're talking about pointers, you know, like eight or five byte numbers or four byte numbers. Uh, so 
they're they're not and and it's always there like there's always a full candidate chain all the way up to the top and the full confirmed chain is always at the top so it doesn't matter if they're the same or they're different they always take the same amount of space and it's you know like currently i think the whole index is a couple meg it's, it's nothing so, uh, okay. so yeah if, if you're holding them in memory it's a different different problem altogether and then what happens when you shut down you, re, you know restart back up you get a, you get a you get to build the candidate chain that nobody else is distributing um so yeah it, it it can get it can get challenging spend a lot of time on that question because i anticipated at some point we may be looking at deep reorgs all right Eric, greatly appreciate you taking the time. Aeon, as always, man, thanks for uh, keeping these things going, asking the good questions. Uh, yeah, thanks for letting me let me up. Thanks for letting me pick your brain, Eric. Always insightful. I don't know. Thanks for feedback and comments. Much appreciated. Yeah, Eric, it's it's been fantastic. Uh, greatly appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you know, we we value your work. Um, it's it's amazing what you're doing. Uh, uh, you know, much, much respect. Sorry, I don't. I say sorry, I don't know know very much about Monero. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully, maybe this uh, turns you on to it a little bit to to do some research, investigate it if you if you can find the time. And I know you're obviously focused on your thing, so I totally get that. But uh, would love to have you down to Monerotopia if at all possible. Maybe I'll, I'll DM you. Maybe I could convince you to come hang out in Mexico City for a day or two. Uh, with, the, with a bunch of Monero people and take you down the rabbit hole a little bit. All right. Uh, uh, thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, we do these shows every week, Monero Talk. Uh, I put the link in the nest, monerotopia.com. We'll be having the conference in May in Mexico City. Uh, thanks again, everybody, and cheers. Have a good night. Thanks, Eric. Greatly appreciate it. Hi, Monero Land. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to our show on YouTube, Odyssey, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to MoneroTalk.live for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. MoneroTalk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever. By typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or CakeWallet send address field to send us a tip. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to being back next week.